You paint that? Yeah. You paint? Mm-mm. Do you sculpt? No. You like art? You like music? It's a real piece of shit. Oh, well, tell me what you really think. Oh, I'm just a... The linear and impressionistic mix makes a very muddled composition. It's also a Winslow Homer ripoff, except you got Whitey uh, rowing the boat there. Well, it's odd one, eh? It wasn't very good. That's not really what concerns me, though. What concerns you? It's the coloring. You know what the real bitch of it is? It's paint by number. Is it color by number? Because the colors are fascinating to me. Are they really? What you about bet. that? I think you're about one step away from cutting your fucking hair off. there and welcome to Pivotal Film. I am Tom Nolan. And the six things that are dead, according to Harold Bloom, are the Western canon, uh-huh. American education, uh-huh. art, according to Sam Potry, he said it is the death of art in the Paris Review, the mind, rock and roll, and the death of the author. What a fucking The death bag. of the author is dead? Yeah. Um, the dead genius is more alive than we are. Genius, a mosaic of 100 exemplary creative minds. Harold Bloom, you real douchebag. I'm hey, Mario Ponzio. Hey, hey, Welcome you. to episode 56. 56? Harold Bloom wishes he was 56. We had a discussion before this. Why were we talking about Harold Bloom? Um, You literally just launched into Harold Bloom. Well, maybe because he just pisses me off. But Harold we were... Bloom pisses me off. I don't know why. Every time I, I love see, Harold Bloom. Every time I see something about Harold Bloom, I'm like, get out of here, Harold Bloom. He's one of my, one of my literary heroes. He's my literary hero? Do you want me to guess? The guy that wrote Encyclopedia, Don, Donald Sobel. Oh, Encyclopedia Brown? I loved Encyclopedia Brown when I was a kid. My literary hero. He was, that's a pretty good one. Although I always wanted the bully to, to beat Encyclopedia Brown. Well, how could he beat Encyclopedia Brown? Well, I just wanted... I he just, could just think his way around him. No, I just wanted the bully to kill the, the girl. <laughs> was it Sally? Like, murder the girl, and now that Encyclopedia Brown doesn't have, like, his muscle, mm-hmm. the bully just beats the shit out of Encyclopedia Brown. A question. I don't know if you knew this, but did and you... And the detective father goes like, yeah, you know what, fucking Encyclopedia? You put her in that position. You. you had that coming to you. Yeah, you shouldn't have done that. You, um, speaking of child detectives, did you know that um, Bev, Beverly, from the It movie made uh, Nancy Drew? Like, remake? Yeah, I heard of that. Did you know that? Sophia Lilias or whatever? I don't know. Apparently, it's not for children. <laughs> By the way, when you said, did you know Bev? And I immediately thought we were talking about a former no, co-worker no. of ours. I almost, said, I almost said Bevy from the Levy, but I was it, just because I was reading 112263. Did you know that Bev from the bookstore made a <laughs> Nancy Drew remake? I was like, I did not know that. That is strange. But the funny thing is... <laughs> would you watch that? Would you, go to, would you go to the theater, the cinema, to watch that? I would. Um, yeah, we would. I think we'd have to. Yeah, yeah. We'd, we'd go to the premiere, I'm sure. <laughs> that we wouldn't be invited. The red... Yeah, we would. Of course we would. Who'd invite us? Somebody. Uh, I can't... I have to imagine... Why would I forget his name? Jerry? What the hell is Larry. that? Larry. <laughs> Don't you imagine that Sorry, that place Larry. closed as soon as, as soon as we left? That place doesn't exist anymore. I drove by it and it was still a bookstore. I'm like, that's not right. I'm actually surprised Southern's still standing every time I drive by there, so... I mean, to be Good fair. Good for you... The Connecticut there's, there's probably, public education system. There's probably somewhere you could find it and be like, 
like pull pull like one brick and then, and it'll just all come down. Yeah, like there goes Lyman Center. Ah, oh, that's that's too bad. That's too bad. Speaking of, if you go to Southern Connecticut State University, you can uh, walk a couple steps down the road. Oh, that is very to a brewery that we've never had before. Mm-mm. Just kidding. We've had this brewery. How many times have we had this brewery now? Um, this may be five. Is it five? Because we did one. We did Sea Hag. We did Sea Hag. We did um, Fuzzy Ducks. Ducks. We did the Mo um, Motuka. Yeah, Motuka. Yeah. Early on, I think we did another one too. I think this might be only four, actually. I think you think so? I could look it up, but I'm not gonna. We haven't done Supernaut yet, right? I don't. I no, we so. haven't done Supernaut yet. Because that's what we're doing today. It's Supernaut, and Tom is is representing the gear. Wearing the New England Brewing Co. shirt. Yep. Um, but yeah, we just we did Seahag what two three episodes ago. Three episodes ago. But that's fine because it's New England is still it's it's our it's it's the it's the place it's the one. And also the problem was I was going to go see Child's Play, uh, as you saw my review of last week, which I really enjoyed. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was like six twenty. And I was like, I had to go over to the new bottle shop, a great beer place typically. And mm-hmm. they had some good beers, but a lot of them were going to be like 20 bucks or they're a little too far away for our rules. So I was like looking over going, oh shit, what am I going to do? New England. It was between 668 and this, mm-hmm. both New England beers. And I was like, let's go super nut. Because yeah, in yeah. summer, you can't drink a, a Belgian strong ale. No, no, also, no. our podcast would be ruined by the middle of my, our first movie. Have you ever had this one before? I don't know. I've had this quite, quite a bit. It is enjoyable. Still good. Yeah, it's good. Um, it's it's a to me it's a it's a fruitier um, sea hag. Well, it says hints of tropical fruit berry flavors. Um, I don't really get any of those, but you're right. It is a you little get, you fruitier. Get a tro- you get like a papaya, papaya, papaya and mango is what I get. I don't get a lot of mango, but it's good. It tastes good. Yeah, papaya is the more forward, but it's got that sea hag kind of mouthfeel to it. Mm-hmm. That's a 5.8. Not bad. Mm. If you drink a good amount of these and you'll be fine. <laughs> Let's hope. We have six of them. And it's cheap, too. This was a 11.99. Yeah. Six I, I was looking for stuff the other day and I kept encountering stuff that was like $20. It's like things yeah, that looked interesting gonna... that were kind of in our wheelhouse. I was like, I just can't do it. I can't I'm pull not going to buy a four pack for 20 bucks. Yeah, no. I'm going to have to start actively. I think this weekend I'm going to go out to a brewery. And find a four pack and then have to just lock myself down and not drink it and just keep it in the back of the fridge and be like, no, Mario, you cannot drink that. Then probably drink it, then go back to the brewery, <laughs> get another four pack, and then we can have that. Because, like, at least from the brewery, you can typically, at most, you're going to spend $15. Um, yeah, I guess so. I mean, I mean, New England is always very fair when they, when they it, have the fuzzy available. They're isn't not Amity, like. Isn't Amity on your way? Or no? Do you go you go a different route? Uh, no, it's not. I go down um, uh, Gaylord Mountain Road. Oh, I know. I think I know what that road you're talking about. So that's where the strip club is. Is there a strip club on Gaylord Mountain Road? I don't think so. Do you is just there, mean the woods? Is there a is there some car dealerships around there? Not on the mountain. I mean, it dumps you down in Hamden. Oh, that one. You go you go there to get to here. Because then I get on the ninety. I get on the. Um, the connector in Cheshire. Or in All of Hamden. our European and Egyptian listeners are loving this conversation right now. <laughs> yeah, I get on the connector, and then uh, that takes me uh, to 91. Is that quicker than just going down 35? Yeah. Yeah, 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 way quicker. Wow, weird. I would have been here much faster tonight if it wasn't so goddamn foggy. 
but it is very foggy. Foggy Nelson? I don't know what that. What is Foggy Nelson? Daredevil? Because you couldn't see? Yeah, sure. Oh, that's why he's called Foggy Nelson, I bet you. <laughs> Good job, Daredevil creators. That makes more sense. Anyways. I didn't read a lot of Daredevil. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't read comic books. What, I look like a nerd to you? Yes. Okay, good. Let's talk about some movies. I guess, what do you want to do first? Do you want to do my quick Toy Story No, let's, let's review, talk, let's or do you want to start with the new the Tom music York, video uh, drop yeah. from yesterday? Let's talk about that. Okay, um, so Tom York has a new record that comes out, came out digitally yes, on the June 27th. It comes out on vinyl and CD on July 19th. It is called Anima. Back up the call aside. You listened to that album, right? What? And you thought it was okay? Yeah, it was a pretty, you know, it's pretty good. Like, the best songs um, are, one of the best songs on the record is on, in, in this video. Um, two of the other ones are I'm pretty indifferent to. There's better better tunes on the record, but apparently they didn't work for this. Um, but yeah, they've dropped a promotional video on Netflix, uh, which is directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. Um, it is shot by... Um, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, but he did the guy that did Seven in the Lost City of Z, and uh, with the choreography by Damien Gillette, who did the Suspiria choreography. So yeah, and, we're keeping it in house. The the actress that plays his partner is his real yeah, yeah, life yeah. partner, right? Um, Good you know, you, Tom York. I don't. I, there's I don't think there's any like necessary reason to describe every single thing that happens in this video. If you have Netflix, just search Anima and you can see it. Um, I mean, it's fairly. So the songs that are featured here are first, um, not the news, then the opening song off the record, Traffic, and then um, Dawn Chorus. Dawn Chorus, which is a beautiful song. It's, it's my favorite song on the record. Um, and it's also the best part. So that's like part number two. Dawn Chorus is part number two. Um, it's the best part of this 14-minute music video experience. Um, everything else is very Paul Thomas Anderson. Like, it looks like Paul Thomas Anderson made it. Um, but it's way over-conceptualized um, with way too many moving parts and moving pieces. And one of the things I did forgot to mention when we were, we were watching it, you know, 20 minutes ago... Um, was that Paul Thomas Anderson shoots too big for music videos. So there's always something happening in the screen, whether or not there should always be something happening in the screen. Like, So someone's always dancing. This is actually his best-reviewed solo album, too. Oh, is that true? That's... I liked Eraser. Eraser, not as well-reviewed. Hmm. Well, uh, 76 through Metacritic. I, I, whatever. Um, yeah, I mean... It's got some cool shots. Yeah. But they, they're, they I mean, go leads on into too that, long. It leads into that dream state aspect. There's a lot of throwbacks to um, Metropolis, like we talked about, uh, coming out. There's of also the... a Punch Drunk Love reference, where Tom York does a a jump dive. Yeah. Um, which I thought was weird. Maybe he's just a big Adam Sandler fan and wanted to 
No, it's a it's tie, it's tie in the murder mystery, of course. Oh, yeah, yeah. You see oh, that? Yeah, you're like, absolutely. Oh, wait, now I should go watch murder mystery, which is apparently like maybe the most watched Netflix movie somehow. Like I, yeah, I heard that. Like 36 million? Whatever. I really wish Netflix is just lying now. Adam Sandler so- 150 people watched it, and Netflix just like, yeah, just say 36 million. Adam Sandler answered the phone like for the first time in like forever, and it was Netflix, and they're like, you know, 36 million people watched the movie. He's like, really? <sighs> Give me some phone numbers. I got to call him and apologize. <laughs> that was never part of the deal. I was not one of those 36 million. I can, uh-huh. I can tell you. Me neither. That's what led to me watching Rolling Thunder review. Saw that there was murder mystery, and I'm like, don't want to watch that. And I was like, I guess I'll, I'll do, watch this. I'll watch anything instead of watching murder <laughs> mystery. Watch a two um, and a half hour long Bob this Dylan. Is gonna, movie. I mean, this is fine. I guess it's not going to take up that much of your time. No. If you're a fan of either of these guys, you know, it's worth a look. Yeah, it's, it's not going to change your life. This is though. the absolute worst review that we've probably done, and the fact that it's just like it's there, yeah. it's all right. I um, mean, do, it they, looks neat. The music is like Dawn Circus is. Um, Don Chorus. Don Chorus, sorry. Yeah. Is, is solid. It's mm-hmm. a solid song. Like, the music in itself is solid. It's Tom York, you know? Yeah. It sounds like Tom York. If you don't like Tom York... Doing stuff. If you re- That's the best part. Of re- the best review of this would be, if you don't like Tom York, you're not going to like gonna this. You're not going to like this. Um, there's all Tom York music and all Tom York in your face. And it's funny because they, do, they did other stuff, too, in this. Like, so there's a lot of people laying on the ground in this movie, or this music video. Um... But, like, Radiohead did a guy laying on the ground in a music video already with Just. You know what I mean? Which is much more effective than whatever this is supposed to be. Um, but if you if you liked Just, you should just watch this, too, because you're obviously a big enough Radiohead fan that you know what the fuck I'm talking about. Um, L- less Douglas Adams-style uh, humor is than, than Just. Just has Douglas Adams-style humor? Yeah. I would say that the... Uh the entire nature of just um is synonymous with the the bureaucratic uh, aliens the um the boltra the oh man it's been so long since i've seen this since i've read it too um oh boy the bureaucratic aliens in hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy oh yeah you know what i'm talking about which one, the guy, which part of it is related to that? Well, it would have been like, well... Just the guy laying on the ground? Yeah, just just the the entire nature of, like, saying the thing and then being so depressed and everyone laying down. Is that what it is? I don't, Maybe it's I a never back and forth that sort of thing. Bogans. Talk about the Bogans. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not the Maybe. Guy. Maybe more the film borrowed it from... It's like a cyclic sharing mm-hmm. spiral dial of control you want to take that out no keep it in just keep it all in speaking um, of being sad speaking of being sad should we talk about toy story 4 now yeah everyone bonnie made a friend in class what a, oh a she's already making friends no no she literally made a new friend i want you to meet forky uh, hi hello hi. Hi. Ah. <gasps> he's a spook yes yeah i know Forky is the most important toy to Bonnie right now. We all have to make sure nothing happens to him. Woody, we have a situation. I am not a toy. I was made for soup, salad, maybe chili, and then the trash. Buzz, we've got to get Forky. Affirmative. I did not see Toy Story 4. No. Uh, I, 
big reason why I would be doing this service to the Toy Story film. I just, they just don't appeal to me. I've never liked them since I was a kid. It I, is... They are not... They are my... Out of all the good stuff that... So I can't even say that because I don't like the Finding Nemo movies. Do you want me to tell you why? Less than... Well, do you want sure. the yeah, most yeah. contrarian try-hard reason why? At 11 years old, I thought computer-generated animated films were wrong. I was like, this is not... I don't like this at all. What do you mean? I just... I felt they were a disservice to animation in my 11-year-old mind, 10-year-old mind. You sound like a lot of fun. Like a super fun 11-year-old. Oh, we're a lot of sputters. <laughs> um, um, so, yeah, I just refused. And then I finally watched it, and I just still didn't like it. It looked ugly to me. The original Toy Story looks, looked ugly back then. Oh, it, it looks, still looks terrible. Ugly. looks um, terrible. I mean, it looks even worse now, but... Yeah. I was never a Tim Allen guy, even as a kid. Here's the thing. <laughs> Not a Tim Allen adult, either. My thing... I didn't like Toy Story 1. I had no affection for Toy Story 1 whatsoever. I didn't give a crap about it. I like Toy Story 2. Toy Story 2? I didn't like Toy Story 2 because I've never been a guy that was willing to accept toys driving cars. I'm not going to do it. I'm just not going to do it. Lives that are voiced by Mark Hamill. I don't care. And he has robot control of it through some sort of Alexa-style system. That's fine. Okay. Because we are, are in that stage of our culture now where that's a thing that might actually happen. So a toy can remotely drive a car as an AI. The idea... So child's play yes, still okay. the idea Got of it. a Buzz Lightyear and a dinosaur and a pig and a potato head and a slinky dog crossing the street with street cones over their heads is idiotic. And I've never, I'm not okay with it. Even in like something like Secret Life of Pets, anytime anthropomorphic things drive cars, I'm out. So Zootopia was not your thing? I don't... I think Zootopia is a weird, weird, weird fucking movie. This is just like a, a weird thing you have going for you? It's you just, very... I think Zootopia is... Every is this time like I, people here, that are afraid of strawberries because no. they have visible seeds? Here's the thing about Zootopia. And we could do a bonus episode on Zootopia about everything that's wrong with Zootopia. So... These animals have to find another animal that's of their species to mate with, right? This so. never gets discussed. Ever. Is there pleasure, like, sex in Zootopia? You know what I mean? Yeah, that's true. Does, like, the, do the bunny and the fox get it on at any point? Did the lamb, did the Jenny Slate voice lamb get it on with the mayor? The, you know. Definitely oral. You think so? No. Just b- on maybe which just end? Oral. Both. I have. I just have something. When I watch Zootopia, I have so many questions that I can't enjoy. You don't want to see a fox and a rabbit sixty-nine. <laughs> I mean, that one. I guess they're at least proportional. Yeah. Um, yeah. But rabbits can stretch them out, self out pretty well. So. Toy Story three. I thought. To get back on track, Toy Story three. I thought was an okay. Was was pretty good. The concept of of toys coming to grips with their end was a kind of fascinating thing. Again, it goes too far. You know, the idea that the, those tiny little aliens are going to manipulate the controls of a garbage dump crane and pull them out very is this, specifically. Is this something you need to talk to a therapist about? No, this, but this, that's this just dumb. It's just dumb, right? It has to. I mean, it's the entire stupid. idea of autonomous toys in of itself is... I'm okay with autonomous toys. I'm just not okay with them doing stuff. Maybe they did, like, toy-specific things autonomously. And I think perhaps that's why I'm a little bit okay with... I like Toy Story 4, I think, the best out of all of them. Because they're not driving cars? Well, they... I mean, prevent, Keanu, Reeves, Keanu Reeves is driving a toy motorcycle. They prevent people from driving cars. So this is the first one where the toys interact with humans. Like, 
For real. Do they take over? Kind of. So the guy's trying to drive a car, and the toys are actively trying to prevent him from not driving the car, and they talk to the humans. The humans don't know, apparently, the voice of their GPS and just follow um, what a Triceratops says. Does Woody cut open a human? No, but there is um, a toy gets cut open, and and um, Keegan-Michael Key and Jordan Peele's Duck and Bunny comment on the nature. How much oh, I, there I, I is. saw. I saw that. Is that is that, where we're, is that where we looked on inside? I saw that yeah. scene. Yeah. So I don't want to go. I'm not going to go into it. Basically, it's you know they're in a new family now. They're with Bonnie. Um, Andrew gave them to Bonnie at the end of, or Andy gave them to Bonnie at the end of the last movie. During the um, of they're still with Bonnie. There, it's like maybe a year removed. Woody has been kind of discarded. You know, Jesse's her favorite toy, pretty much. Um, but Woody tricks himself into going to school with her. He helps him make Forky, who is one of the great film characters of all time. He is a spork um, that Bonnie turns into a toy. He doesn't want to be a toy. He wants to be trash. Um, so Tony Hale, I, I do have to say, not having not seen, seen this, but Tony Hale's always impressive in stuff he does for me. It's a fascinating turn for the movie to deal with the like existential knowledge of like how a toy like gains consciousness. You know what I mean? And so the, the whole movie is secretly about like gaining consciousness and becoming like a conscious, real thinker. Um, but it's really funny, and I think the thing that. Toy Story and Pixar movies do better than anybody is they let the correct people do the voices regardless of how popular or well-known they are. So Annie Potts, for all of you designing women fans out there or original Ghostbusters fans, is now a 66-year-old lady um, doing the voice of Bo Peep, who, you know, in a movie that's going to make 118... who made $118 million uh, its first week in the box office. Um... Under normal circumstances in this culture, Annie Potts does not get to do anything in popular movies anymore. Just a thing that happens. You know I what mean, I mean? I mean, she's going to have something to do in next year. Well, for this terrible, terrible Ghostbusters reboot. It's got Paul Rudd. It might be okay. It's going to be awful. Um, yeah, it'll be, uh, it'll be incels, the incel movement's favorite movie. Um, but yeah, it's a good, it's a, it's a pretty good flick. It's probably in my top five Pixar movies, Toy Story. 4. Really? Yeah. Um, what would be your top five of the Pixar's? Um, Ratatouille, um, Wall-E, um, Incredible. I mean, uh, Ratatouille and Wall-E are one and two. Incredibles two is probably on there. Uh, Toy Story four. We're, you're one hundred percent wrong about the Incredibles, but we'll talk about that later. Um, Incredibles two is Garbo. It's not. It isn't. It's just not Incredibles 1. <laughs> it's just, it's a repeat of the first Incredibles. Which is fun because the first Incredibles stinks. The first so Incredibles, it needed a repeat. First Incredibles has a lot more charisma. Oh, it has no charisma. It's, it has the opposite of charisma. It has Jason Lee in it. Yeah, no, Jason Lee's bad in it. But I, I mean, Craig T. Nelson is selling hey, much more in the first because Incredibles. Because he was 14 years younger. And Holly Hunter and him have a lot more, you know, they, 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 there's a lot more chemistry there. It actually feels real. And the second one, it feels really forced. We don't need to get it. And I like the fact that you focus on Holly Hunter in the second one, but like she's not as assertive as a character. I feel in the second one, but she's more assertive as a character. I don't think so, though. I think she's more in control of the the family dynamic in the in the first one than she is in the second one. Um, But the first, the second one's way. I mean, we don't really have to get into this now. The second one's way funnier. Um, I agree. I would agree. It looks better. Oh, what? What do you mean? 
14 years didn't help. It's important. Um, but yeah, so uh, Toy Story 4 is, is, is a really good flick. I hope it ends. I hope it stops. Um, I, I hope I'm not going with a 19-year-old kid to see Toy Story 5 in 10 years. Um, that would please, that you know that would make me happy. My, Let's my, come, up my son. New, come up with a new movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Your son who's going to age, like come out at 9. Secretly have a 9-year-old You're going to adopt son. a 9-year-old, yeah. That'll be good. Um, so yeah, Toy Story 4. Um, so we saw a movie together, though. We did. Um, it is... I am currently while we're talking about Toy Story Four, I was reading the Richard Broder review. Oh, good. Yeah, because uh, I was reading that before. I'm so glad. I'm so glad it. he mentions the fact that they're sexless because that that's important, Richard Brody. I usually like you, but that's <laughs> nothing that you need to talk about. Um, well, oh, that was Mike Epps. It, of course, it was Mike Epps. He deserves an Oscar. You know, what I thought it, I thought it, you know, I thought it was was um not Mike Epps. I thought it was a uh, from. Mike Epps kind of looks like uh, oh. what's his name from uh, Forrest Gump now? Like has he has he filled out and gained a little weight? Um, McKenny Williamson? Yeah. No, really? Yeah, I thought it was McKenny Williamson. Yeah, it'd be cool if it was Diamond Huntsu, but it's not. It was Mike Epps. Um, the movie we're talking about is Last Black Man in Brooklyn. Or Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> the sequel to The Last Black Man in San Francisco. Hey, if you're going. No, this episode's called The Last Black Man in, in Brooklyn. Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> what? <Where>? What? <laughs> it is the uh, directorial debut. I don't know why I'm singing in Brooklyn. I've been saying that in my head all day. Yeah, it's, it's not. I mean, I guess Brooklyn is the San Francisco of the it, East. Like, yeah, it is. But not. Yeah. But not. Because San Francisco's a fucking trash heap. <laughs> and if you're from San Francisco, I'm sorry. You should leave San Francisco. Um, it is the directorial debut of John Talbot. It is a, about a young man, um, Jimmy Fails, played by Jimmy Fails. Joe Talbot. That's what I said. No, you said John. Oh, I did. I just right. checked my notes, like, literally, as you were saying it. I was looking, at, I was the like, word Joe. Joe. I was looking at the word Joe and just saying John. Uh, he lives with his uh, best friend, Montgomery Allen, played by Jonathan Majors. They um, repeatedly go to this old house in the Fillmore region of San Francisco. Uh, uh, to paint and repair it. It is now owned by a older couple, older white couple. Um, Jimmy claims that the house was uh, built in the 1940s by his grandfather, um, being the first black man in San Francisco after, you know, the um, the, China, the Japanese had been displaced into mm-hmm. concentration camps, you know, the, the camps that we still have to this day uh, for Hispanic people now. People will disagree with you, Mario. Oh, God. They're wrong. And they're fucking idiots. <laughs> um, and hopefully you don't vote. The election is next uh, d- December. Yeah, if, Everyone. You think, if you think they're not concentration camps, just Remove the election to December 2020. <laughs> um, eventually, the 
uh, older couples displaced and Jimmy and Montgomery, while the house is empty, uh, kind of move in. Has in a squatting kind of uh, mm-hmm. sense, uh, but the still, fanciest squatters ever. Yeah, they're they're refurbishing it, making it into their own house. They're they're taking care of it. Um, soon things kind of unravel as truths come to light. Uh, then it comes a definite film about identity mm-hmm. and, and the source of how you define yourself and, and what defines you and, and and your place in life. And are you defined by your place? Are you defined by one thing? Um, you yeah. know, your Sundance indie drama yeah. uh, comes out of this. And this is... Um, it's clearly it's, a first feature. Yeah. And it is, but... I mean, it, it has that eccentricness that, um, like, Boots Riley, Sorry to Bother You had. But mm. it, there's there's not a lot of dimension to this, which is, is yeah. unfortunate. Um, that's fucking masterfully acted. Mm. Everyone in this is doing work. Like, there is not... Like, there's not a single performance I don't see in there where I'm like, this isn't doing things. I would say fails and majors are doing some of the best work of the year. Yeah, the only reason I don't think that... The only thing I'm not in love with with Jimmy Fallon's performance is that I don't know if the script gave him enough to do. No, that's true. I think this that's is a true. problem with, like, any... But he's playing against such eccentric types yeah. throughout the film that he really sells this kind of neurosis, this, I this, like this insanity yeah. that he has. Like, it's, it's, a, it's an obsession yeah. that he has uh, with this house. Um you know, beyond the pale of obsession, but he's surrounded by people who are so outside of the norm. You know, it is that personification of the weirdness and the the uniqueness that mm. is, you know, kind of defined San Francisco. And he treats it with such a, a straight face while also still selling his own eccentricities, but in a way that gives the viewer an insight that I really appreciate. I think you're right about the... I... But it does transition to Jonathan Major's character towards the end. And like, fucking those two work so well off yeah, of each other. I just, I wish, part of me wishes the, I think you're right. I think everyone's It's doing, Major's, it's Major's film, for sure. He's the most interesting character. Um, I think, but it's a character that could have been, it's it's not a character, it's a character in spite of Talbot's writing. It's not an easy character. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, here's the thing. I think this, the script is not, the script is not bad. The script just doesn't, didn't, doesn't know what it wants to be. So I think a mistake in the movie, and did, I don't know if, well, I don't know if we've talked about this before, but like, um, one of the things I don't like when people do in movies is do what they kind of do in cartoons, which is give people, like, uniforms. You know what I mean? Like, you know how the Simpsons always wear the same thing every yeah, day? Yeah, they make that joke about the Simpsons, like, about how he's always, you know, he's Jimmy's all, always in the and, same and shirt. And Mont always wears, like, the jacket. The overcoat. You know, even when he's, like, working at the fish market, he's always wearing the overcoat, like, over well, his apron and stuff. There's, from a technical standpoint, this film has such weird choices. Um... You well, know, Brody continuity errors. Yeah, well, no, not beyond beyond. Yeah. Like, so there's there's some continuity errors that we talked about uh, being on purpose versus you know just simple mistakes. Uh, the part early on where Jimmy's excited to be in the house falls on his face and is bleeding through his teeth. Um, as he's on the ground talking to somebody else, mm. uh, he eventually stands up and his teeth are clean. Mm. I think that's purposeful. You know, like there's a, there's there yeah. there seems to me to be a sense of like. Rawness versus the presentation of what he, he feels he can be now that he's like a homeowner. Uh-huh. Um, the other continuity errors are like having a hood up or down, like you said, or we talked about when they're in the kind of like sauna, yeah, room, yeah, yeah. Um, smoking joints, and it just um, and or splits and it it's like being the, the size back and forth, yeah. But it's different sizes every time someone gets it. And I think there's two of them, mm-hmm. but the two I don't sizes know if there's two. I think, I think there's no. One. There's a part where they show all three in frame and you see two. Huh. Um, 
But that could also. Like, but beyond that, be like yeah, beyond that, yeah. early on, um, there, there's some choices in terms of the cinematography where there's a dimensionality to it. That's that's odd. Uh, it's 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 a forced focus. Yeah, um, the deep focus shit in the beginning is, is, is really strange. confusing. It creates a weird aesthetic that I thought was going to be on purpose because mm. the early film presents itself really, really in a lot of similar ways to Sorry to Bother You, and that it, it's it's unnaturally natural. Mm. Like it's it's otherworldly while still being within our world, but it, then it kind of just grounds itself as the film goes on. Yeah, and so I'm not sure about that choice. The one six six to one, one point six six to one aspect ratio was a really weird choice because it creates kind of really dull images, and not necessarily dull images in the sense of um, like what Brody said in his review of like the tactileness or uh, of. What of the, what you're seeing, but more just the fact that everything is is strictly obeying rule of thirds, like everyone's framed either center, left, or right, and that's boring. It's made by a guy who, the Joe Talbot has clearly seen a lot of movies. It's a, yeah, it's seen a lot. And of he's movies. doing a lot of. He's you can tell it's a stage play though. Has film. That that's my problem. It's like it is, it is, it is always, the camera's always kind of. In one, it reminds me a lot of like Bottle Rocket, mm. um, in that the, the camera Bottle kind of stays on right. one axis. Yeah, here's. I mean, I think you make a good point with the stage play thing. I think, especially because which would make sense because it ties to the play aspect of it. it the Montgomery movie, is a, is a is a playwright he's slash a playwright. artist, yeah, and yeah, he yeah. kind of drafts this play about the last black man in um, uh, San Francisco trying to reach Jimmy, turn near the the, the movie movie's end. Could have done with movie seventeen ends. Could have done with more characters, but also. Or, or maybe not more characters, but giving the characters that are in it more to do. Like, it would have been cool if Jimmy had a real scene with the homeowner. You know what I mean? Mm. That would have been really cool. If he had, like, a real conversation with her about, like, what the house means to her, what the house means to him. You know, um, something like that. If, or, been... or, his, or his interactions as a nursing home attendant. Like, yeah. I, I, like, there's parts like that where I don't really understand. Like, so they show these two guys having jobs, and then they never show them going to those I think, jobs again. I think, like, yeah, I think him, I think the, um, you know, Montgomery working as, like, the fishmonger is is fine. Like, it's it's it works in establishing a, a, a scene sort of thing. Um, but then, like, you know, Jimmy has the nursing home attendant kind of has, like, a purpose and a focus to, like, developing him as a character. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it's never revisited. And, no, and I nothing just... about... I mean, I guess, in essence, it's supposed to say that there's something more to him. It's, it adds to that kind of, like, theme in the end well, that Jimmy what, is yeah. more than the home. Here's what I would say. Is that, like... That's not even brought up in the end that, you know, he's not a caring person. That's not brought up. It's just like Carpenter. And it's like, well, we see that he's a Carpenter. We see that he's these, this thing and this thing. And they don't bring up... Yeah, though that you know, the one time you see him interacting with someone in the in the at the the old folks home, she's like, "Oh, you're such a nice young man." He's given like old people sitting on the stoop a high five. And um, it gives him the most. That's like the most character he's, he has in the film. Well, so me. Richard Brody. I mean, I love Richard Brody, so I can I have no problem talking about him like a lot. Um, he kind of says that like Jimmy's character is just kind of a collection of post-it notes um, that Joe Talbot has kind of created. Of like, he's these set of eccentricity. He's eccentricities. He's these clothes and. Parts of the movie, he kind of becomes a cipher in the sense that he's just standing there. Um, he's not necessarily moving the, the the narrative forward. He's just interacting with. And the I wonder narrative. if that's like I wonder if that's a fault of you know Jimmy Fails being involved in the story oh, himself. I, like, I, I, kind of, of like yeah. One of the things I was going to say when we started this conversation, of himself. this conversation was that a lot of times when you 
I, a problem I have with movies that deal with um, like a kind of personal reflection or an autobiographical have an autobiographical quality to them. The main character is often like the observer, and they're just kind of seeing what's happening there, and there's not a lot of emotion attached to it. And I think one of the faults of the movie. Um, spoiler alert, is that when Jimmy ultimately makes whatever decision that he makes, we don't really know, like, he makes the decision to leave, but we don't really know what he does. We don't really get to see him have any kind Reno of emotional... Or Sacramento. Yeah. Um, yeah, he goes to Sacramento. He's in Lady Bird, too. Goes to Davis. Um, we don't get to see him have that kind of emotional realization. You know what I mean? Everything's just happening to him, or at him, or around him, but we don't ever get to see him react directly to whatever self-knowledge he's gaining. Mm. You know what I mean? Um, it's, it's, it's funny, because we were talking about the fact that like Th- Thor Birch has a cameo. I mean, it's not a cameo, because I don't know if Thor Birch is famous anymore. Um, but she's in the end of the movie. And Jimmy's on a bus, and he... You know, Thor t- Birch, one of our listeners, just turned it off. <laughs> he tells her... I, lo- I mean, I love Thor Birch. She can call any time, and I will tell her for an hour how much she meant to me when I was... She was 18 the, years she old. She was in the Olympus Get Eat You Live music video, so don't forget that. She dated Fred Durst for a while. Did they really? Yeah, it was a big problem for me. Oh, I'm sorry, Thor Birch. It's all right. I thought you were saying sorry to me. No. Um, it's interesting because so Jimmy has a conversation with her on the bus about the fact that she says she hates San Francisco, and he's like, you can't say you hate San Francisco unless you love San Francisco. And um, it ties a little bit to, like, towards the end of Ghost World in the sense that, like... Oh, that was Finn Rock, too, huh? Who? When? Playing, oh uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, in the sense that, like, at the end of Ghost World, like Thor Birch's character Enid realizes that she doesn't really have any place anymore. I'm spoiling like a an episode, like a point I'm going to make, you know, many episodes from now. Um, people are keeping track. Um, she kind of realizes she doesn't have a place anymore in this world, and so, but you get, and so she gets on a bus and she and she leaves. Um, but you get to see her kind of wrestle with those emotions before she gets on the bus and just disappears from the rest of the movie. You know what I mean? Um, Joe Talbot has kind of taken that away from us in this movie. We don't get to see Jimmy react to anything. You know what I mean? He gets to say things that we already know that he feels. You know what I mean? He loves San Francisco and he hates San Francisco. He loves the house um, because of what what he believed it represented, but he also hates the house because it's not the thing that he thought that it was. He loves Mont because Mont was accepting of him when he like had all these problems in his life, but he also knows that he can't really grow as a person if he's just kind of doing this same thing over and over and over Here's again. Here's the thing I, I kind of wondered at the end of the film. Um, if it was intentional. Because we talk a lot about like what, what intentions were being made in this. Sure. Cause is, is this really Jimmy's story? Yes, I think it is. See, I think it, he intends it to be, but then in the end... That's the because thing. Because the like, writing so, is not great, it's, it is. But it, does, it transitions to be Montgomery's story, and if it ends up being Montgomery's story, it's a stronger narrative. But where, if it's Mott's story, where does it go? But yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? Because So well, the thing that Richard Brody said in his review, which I thought was weird, I mean, is that like, he was like, a, it seems like, was like... He was like, oh, Mott's a gifted playwright. And I was like, we've never seen him do anything, except for like play on this pier like when it's low tide. Like... How do we know he's gifted? Because the play that we see that he wrote fucking stinks. Um, and it's not really overly... It's not powerful or interesting. And it does not have the effect that I think it's supposed to have. Well, unless... It, this isn't true. But if all the people were in on it, who he 
it talks to and they're actually performers, that would actually be a pretty good play then. Do you think that's what it was? Oh, no, it wasn't. <laughs> but if you had written all those rules and all those people knew what yeah. to say, that'd actually be a pretty good play. Mm-hmm. Has anybody done that? I'm just thinking about that. Yeah, isn't been, that, isn't that what those, play like, where, like, those live reenactments, like, uh, was that T- uh, Tony and Tina's wedding? Like, you go to New York City and, like, you sit, like, it's, um, it's like, it's like, just like medieval times, isn't it? Isn't that what medieval times is? No, but I mean, no, what I mean is, like, it's a good idea. But no, like, and I, like, audience members are part of the cast, you know? Yeah. I mean, I assume that's happened. I'm not a big, I'm not a big stage guy, mm-hmm. uh, modern stage. No, I'm sure it's happened. But now that you said wedding, by the way, wouldn't that be, I just thought it was, like, awesome. Wouldn't it be awesome if there was a play set at a wedding and all the seats for the audience? Yeah, that's Tony and Tina's wedding. Oh. Yeah. Their actual wedding. It's like a wedding, like, and reception thing where, like, you you sit. You can go and sit and then people act out stuff, like, all around you. So you feel like you're at the wedding like while people, people are having, like, a thing. While people at your table? Yeah, I think so. Oh, oh like, murder mysteries do that, too. Never mind. Guys, I don't know the stage. I mean, you had a good idea that someone has already has already had. But is there a giant listen, man-eating crocodiles Listen, Mario, the involved? second guy that came up with bread also probably had a really good day that day. Or sliced bread. He also, his mind is... Totally no, the second blown. guy cut off his hand. Actually, what I'm doing. He's like, I got this. No, <laughs> and that's how he became Captain Hook. Um, I think it's an interesting movie. I don't think it's a great movie. I think it's a very it well-intentioned is... movie, and in parts, a a moving movie. I think the score is really yeah, wonderful. Yeah, it's, it's a solid score. Think, um, uh, that is the score is by. Oh, I had here. Um, Emil Mosseri. Yeah, which I'm not familiar with his. I'm not either, and I think the cinema, like, some of the cinematography is okay. It's pretty good. The cinematography doesn't work. It's, uh, it's a little too on the much nose. For me. Um, he's he's not done. He's not done much. Um, I just I he's don't... done. This is his. This would be his like second. This would be his first major feature. This is going to get nominated, I'm sure, for an I uh, an Independent Spirit Award like best. I wouldn't first be feature. surprised. I wouldn't be surprised if this snuck in. If this is a particularly shitty Oscar year, this could be this could sneak in as a screenplay nomination. Because I, I could see Maybe, yeah. I could see people lo- like lacking the script. Uh, my problem is 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 it's a really disjointed narrative. It, it's, um, it's, it's very it's, disjointed. It's also yeah. I'm gonna be honest, it's, the editing is poor. Mm. <laughs> it's laborious at times and it feels like it ends several times. Like when he says fuck San Francisco, I'm like, perfect no no and like there's 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 crescendoing action. There's like an ascension and descension. It doesn't it doesn't follow a typical narrative, which is fine. I'm okay with it not following a typical narrative. But when it, it's got a, when you're not doing that, you have to follow a certain purpose. And there's a, a tonality to it that's gone. The tone. It's, it's it's really well, missed tone. I think too. Like we talked about. I was trying to say. Uh, keep going. Uh, I think. I mean. I think the tone thing is really the key here. Is that like this wants to be. Especially with some of the voiceover stuff by that that um, you know milk crate preacher that's standing in front of you know uh, the harbor there, um, who's just like yelling like, "What are these guys doing in suits? Like this this has been this water's been poisoned forever. It's like you know the devil's mouth." Um, it wants to be this very kind of serious film, but it also has this very these kind of not serious things about it too. Yeah. Like it almost like there's parts of this movie that I struck me when it's I was watching of, it as like a Michael Gondry movie, it's but kind like of garish, not. Yeah. 
Um, or like kaleidoscopy. Not kaleidoscopy. Not kale- go, yeah, get I, garish. Not, it's just, I try to say like visual cacophony. Mm. You know, and, and there's no really word for that. Schrodenfreud. Let's call it that. Yeah, part of it I think is... Oh, that was loud. Part of it I think is the fact that like it's San Francisco and they're inside this like beautiful Victorian home and those things are inherently... They look like that anyway. You know what I mean? There's just like all this kind of well, different no, that's, colored I'm furniture. Not, I'm not even talking about that. I'm just talking... But I think it's how it's, how he it's treat, shot. How he treats that stuff. You know what I mean? So we don't ever get a really clear... We don't... We don't, I would have really liked to have understood exactly how that whole house worked. You know what I mean? But instead, we have, like, the bottom floor, living room, dining room. That's it. Um, we have, like, that one room the with the room. witch's hat. And then we have the library. And that's really it. Which is the library's but on the first? Second floor. Obviously, it's going to be... It has to be on the second floor, right? Probably. Well, it has to yeah, be because there's living room, room, dining room, kitchen, and then the like, stairs. And then the library's above the living room. Probably. I mean, because that, that's a bad thing, like, th- like I don't know where the kitchen is, because, it, it, like, I think they're doing eggs in the kitchen, but it doesn't look like a kitchen, and I'm not sure. Like, there's yeah. no sense of place, but my problem, no, why I say, like, visual cacophony, it, it's more just, like, shot composition. Like, it's, it, it's flooded. Um, but I think that's part of it. So, like, he doesn't really... The, the, I, uh, the director I and the cinematographer aren't sure purpose how... purpose of, of doing this. I don't think it's a purpose. I think it's just how they did it. Yeah, it's but just it the, looks it's just how it ends up bad, and it's it. I don't want to say headache inducing. That that's that's strong. It's 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 a slight to the narrative. It's but it also doesn't give you. And I, then when it and then when it's edited in the way it's edited, when it's kind of like shot in the way that it's, you know, scenes kind of like yeah. build and then kind of just die out. The sorry that happens a lot. The sorry body um, comparison I think is really good too because like, so why do Mont and Jimmy live in the bedroom that they live in. Yeah, because why are they, why they, they say bedroom? This is a big, it's a decent sized house. And they clearly have the whole run of it because at the end of the, like they're in the top, they're in the bottom floor, and they're in the top floor, like they're all over the place. Um, why we don't ever get a sense of what the hell we're we're looking at? You know, why what are I mean? these four guys? Why are these four guys just kind of like chorus? Just um, standing around at, in front of that house and only that house. You know, there's there's do no they, sense. I mean, so part of me was like, do they live there? Like, are they sharing like a space? And that's but why no, everyone, you, you know, is it a ha- is it a kind of like halfway house, like angels in the outfield? You know what I mean? Where that like woman so, takes we got, in. We got real angels in the outfield situation. Yeah. <laughs> that woman takes in Joseph Gordon Levitt, and, and that's not and it's and it sounds like we're shitting on this movie, but we're not. This movie does have some I think it's huge, mo- like really solid, like so, like best of the year sort of moments. That entire scene after. Um, Kofi is killed, mm. and the guy kind of like you know the, the the two get in each other. Jimmy and and the um the one shorter guy get in each other's mm-hmm. kind of face, and he kind of just like crumbles in on them. That's that works. Even like the, there's a lot of like I'm, I'm, I'm I think I when feel, Kofi goes to the house, too, yeah. that's a like that whole chunk like, of scene is a very is a Talbot, very well good. Talbot has scene. a lot of talent. Like he has an incredible amount of talent. He's not like lightning in a bottle like like Boots Riley. No, 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 no. But he's he's, he's gonna. He'll work himself into a solid debate. And I think that's what we're seeing here, is that this is a first feature from a, like, this is from a, for a number of different people. And it's, um, it's a, a worthy first feature, and I'm glad it exists. Um, but don't go into it. I mean, it's reviews are it really it solid. change your life. It's not going to. I mean, there's going to be moments you look at it and go, like, this is really working. And there's going to be moments where you are looking at your phone or looking at your watch because it kind of directs. Mm. Um, but this is going to be a good revisitor, like... 
Somebody does a. I, I can see Joe Talbot really doing solid work in the future as he kind of gets his voice down. I can see this and movie becoming be like, like a streaming. Oh, I see. Like hit. Yeah, or like oh, I see what he was starting to do there and what he perfected later on. Mm-hmm. You know, because you do get kind of visual tenements of, of of a voice in there. Like I, I think that kind of forced perspective is a is a choice, and I think that aspect ratio is a choice, and I don't think but, it's a choice being taken from other directors or being taken from other films. Yeah, it, I think it is it only in the sense that I think it's it. it's emotionally it's doing something emotional, and rather than kind of doing it himself, he did something that a lot of other directors um, like have done, or you know, or will do, or that you know do all the time, like the straight ahead, deep focus push and shot is something that like tons of directors. I mean, we just talked about Animus or Anima, but yeah. Paul Thomas Anderson does that fucking shit all the time. You know what I mean? And it's clearly Joe Talbot knows who Paul Thomas Anderson is. Your top, it's like never heard of him. Of Stanley Kubrick, I don't know who that guy is at all. Um, but yeah, I mean, if it's if it's rolling out very slowly, so it just got to New Haven today. Um, you know, I'm sure if it hasn't hit your, maybe this is the last like iteration of it. Yeah, maybe this is the end. So. Um, Our audience was not not packed, <laughs> and we had people walk out, which I was yeah, weird. Was, <laughs> what weird? happened to those people? I don't know. They seemed, really, they seemed really angered by shirtless young men. But, um, yeah, we should... Um, yeah, oh, by the way, if, if you're an old Jewish couple and are offended by young shirtless men, do not see this movie. Mm. It will. That are smoking in a sauna. Yeah. Which apparently was not original to the house, yet had, like, a wood-burning, like, a I mean, cast-iron sauna thing adds, in it. That adds... That maybe adds to, like, the... His They're not really knowing yeah. how... Yeah. yeah. Um, but, yeah, so if you get an opportunity to go see... Um, Last black man in San Francisco. Yeah, and um, and it's follow up sequel. Last person. Last last last, Brooklyn. <laughs> last uh, Bohemian in Brooklyn. They're just they're and they both end with the best friend of the main character staring at the end of like a body of water, and you know we're supposed to believe that they're looking at each other. But the weird thing is, in the Brooklyn movie, it's Lake Ontario, so it doesn't make any sense. Mm, Brooklyn, Canada, right? Um, but we'll, we'll be right, right back. Uh, I believe we talked in uh, episode zero, right? That was episode zero. About? About a certain, a certain film troupe. Uh, they were one of my 101 to 105s. I don't remember what number they were. I think they might have been 103. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I thought that was on your like list proper. But, no, I think you're right. No, it, it was not. It's not on my list proper. It was, it was, it was, it was, it was not on my list proper. It was, it was like 103. And I said that we would talk about them one more time mm-hmm. because, you know, I grew up with this group. Uh-huh. Uh, them and uh, Lauren Hardy were a big part of my childhood. My dad tried to introduce me to Three Stooges. And I was like, get this garbage horse shit out of my face. Mm. Three Stooges sucks. I've never thought that the Three Stooges were even kind of funny. There's, what is, what's funny about them? I don't know. What's funny about the... Where? I feel kind of like about the Three Stooges like I feel about the Honeymooners. Like, I just find it very disagreeable. 
Yeah, it's disagreeable. It's really antiquated. Mm. I mean, at least Honeymooners has like the least the the intelligence to have Ralph be the butt of his own jokes to a certain degree. But I suppose, still... and they they do rest on that a lot. They do like to make sure that you know that he's the butt of his own jokes. But like when he's not being the butt of his own jokes, he's a real piece of shit. It makes me uncomfortable. Yeah, I mean, no, and then that's not like virtue signaling or anything like that. It's just always made me feel weird. Like even as a kid, yeah. And and the Three Stooges maybe not so much that way. The Three Stooges are just stupid. They're really fucking stupid. But the Marx Brothers, we talked about Night of the Opera. Uh-huh. Um, my mother was always a huge fan. And the first movie she ever introduced me to was the movie on my list today. And it's 1933's Leo McCary, Duck Soup. These are the laws of my administration. No one's allowed to smoke or tell a dirty joke. And whistling is forbidden. We're not allowed to tell a dirty joke. Where will we go now? If chewing gum is chewed, the chewer is pursued. And in the who's cow hidden? If we choose to chew, we'll be pursued. If any form of pleasure is exhibited, report to me and it will be prohibited. I'll put my foot down, so shall it be. This is the land of the free. The last man nearly ruined this place. He didn't know what to do with it. If you think this country's bad off now, just wait till I get through with it. Duck Soup is the last film of uh, their their initial five um, that would feature uh, Zeppo uh, Marx, the youngest Marx brother, who would then go off to become, I think, an engineer and like theater agent, um, you know, leaving behind his career with the Marx brothers. Mm-hmm. Um, this would follow Hits, Coconuts, Animal Crackers, uh, Monkey Business, and Horse Feathers. I've only seen Monkey Business and Animal Crackers from those. I haven't watched the totality of the filmography. I've seen the big ones, like Night Day at the Races, Night at the Opera, obviously. Um, but Duck Soup was my first introduction to them. And I was young watching this, really young. Um, Probably, I'd say maybe five or six. Mm. And some of the big jokes were great for a five or six-year-old. I showed it to my kids today. Yeah. And they thought two of the, you know, two of the bits were very, very funny. The mirror scene? The mirror scene and the peanut scene. Yeah, the the two exact scenes, I'd say. Yeah. The peanut scene and the mirror scene for a five or six-year-old is hilarious. Mm -hmm. As I grew older... um, you know, so the, the Groucho Marx jokes got to me, the, those those little snide quips. Mm-hmm. Antiquated and mean-spirited, but still funny. Um, Groucho just had a, a great sense of delivery. Now I looked at this, though, as just a really solid anti-war movie. <laughs> In a time where, you know, you're, you're dealing with the pre-code era of Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Um but it's so aggressively anti-war. I, famously, the Marx Brothers took pride. They didn't say it was directly uh, an attack on Mussolini, you know, Ciccolini being uh, you know, Chico <laughs> Marx. They didn't say it was a direct attack on Mussolini, but they took great pride in the fact that it was banned in Italy. Mm-hmm. Um, but this movie just says a lot against the ideas of, of, of patriotism and, and crazed nationalism. And I think both from the sides of what would be coming and what was even happening in America at the time. You know, like that, that 
that Otis, he kind of says in the beginning, Rufus Firefly. Um, the plot being <coughs> this man, Rufus Firefly, played by Groucho, is uh, to be appointed leader of the small, bankrupt country. Um, spies from another country, uh, Harpo and Chico, are going to kind of upset the balance. Um, it eventually leads to some kind of crazy upheaval leading to war and nonsense but it's just it's it's a matter of of getting the bits Mm -hmm. it's a movie about getting the bits um but a lot of those bits work for me in the sense of what they say you know when he's doing that opus about like you know what is you know what are you gonna do as a leader um the laws of the administration Uh and he's just running through the the breakdown of both um you know, uh, like like what both sides of the alley would say, you know, and like how people will blindly hoop and holler for each new leader. And it's mm-hmm. like, if you, you know, if you thought the last guy was bad, you know, and I'm so glad we got rid of the last guy, just wait till you get a load of me sort of thing. Well, not even that, but like the the person that gets to choose it is just like the money lady. Exactly. She gets to dictate who gets to lead the country. And even looking at now, the, the, the great moment too of... Um, we're going to war. That song, mm-hmm. you know, where you get Harpo. Actually, they're all playing stringless banjos, but you have Harpo actually playing the banjo. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it's it's a stringless banjo, but he's actually strumming it correctly. <laughs> um, and there's a great line where all God's children are going to have guns. Going to have guns, and that's based off an old um, anthem of, of all God's children are going to have wings, mm-hmm. which is kind of like. Famous Heim of the Black Community um, would then become a Eugene O'Neill play in the mid um, early twenties. I don't know if you're familiar with that one. Mm. Um, about a black man who's becoming a lawyer who's kind of like beat down by um, like his really resentful white wife, mm-hmm. um, and, and deals really heavily with race relations in the twenties. Like it divides neighborhoods into three triangles, like blacks, whites, and you know suppressing and repressing and. and Using that line stuck to me, just looking back at this, of all God's children going to have guns, about like the, the, the use of war and the use, like, like this is a broke country, you know, uh-huh. a, a country that, that is on its last limbs that, that kind of blindly follow, but still is, they're going blindly off to war, following an idiot, you know, Who based never off... claimed to be anything other than an idiot. Yeah, exactly. Who um, <laughs> said... Uh, will you marry me? And do you have money? Answer the first, second question first. <laughs> All I can give you is a Rufus over your head. Um, but using those lyrics strikes to me. You know, like the abuse of the people for the benefit of the rich and the idiots. Mm. You know, the rich, um, Mrs. Teasdale, who points the leader, and the idiots being, you know, the the, the four bumbling Marx brothers kind of stumbling around. Um, And that, that speaks to me. It, it speaks to me in the sense of I've always appreciated the Marx Brothers comedy. You know, I find the bits great. I, I think it's it's comedy that tra- like transcends the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think the humor in here is nearly as good as it is in Night in the Opera Day at the Races. Mm. Like, a lot of the jokes don't work. The mirror joke isn't as funny anymore. I, I mean, find parts of it clever. Like uh, I don't think the mirror joke is funny. I do think it's like hypnotic at this point. It's hypnotic. After seeing it a bunch of times, um, like I said, my kids thought it was funny. 
But I, you know, so it was like the, I think it was like the third time I watched that scene, like this week, getting ready for this. Um, and you just kind of fall into the rhythm of it, and the uh, the fact that there's no sound at all, just yeah, kind of dropping out the sound just design, just brings you, the you kind of, of right into of the there, film. Um, is is kind of fascinating. But I think you're you're right about the. Um, like the sentiment is really, really interesting, and I, the thing that kind of I picked out this time, which I'd kind of never noticed before, is like Harpo cutting the pockets out of everyone's pants. Yeah, um, he cuts other stuff too, but I think it's just to kind of distract you from the fact that like he cuts the he cuts lots of different things, but he when he gets an opportunity to, he cuts the pockets out of your pants. Um, and what is like what is that about the money? Yeah. yeah, exactly, and that's just like he's just. Um, I'm an upstanding, I'm an upstanding man. Represent all the morals. So if you don't have my cut, you know, put you against the wall and pop goes the weasel, yeah. as Rufus says in a song. It's it's very um, to that end. It's much deeper than like some of those other slapstick, you know, and, comedies from that from that time. And, and famously, this movie underperforms. Um, you know, the, the four previous films do exceedingly well. Because they're pretty irreverent, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and this is the one where people just, just I mean, it, it didn't fail. It wasn't a bomb. Uh, it just doesn't, it underperforms. And, and and that's the thing is, like, I think it's it's too, I think even in the time, it's too real. It, it has too much of the sentiments of what people are dealing with. Well, there's not a lot of, it's funny because if you compare this, and I think Night of the Opera is like the next movie they make, right? Isn't Night of the Opera the first movie they make for... Was it MGM that they go to after this? They kind of get stuck in the studio system after just kind of being... Yeah. Um, there's a lot less joy here than there is in um, Night at the Opera, which we... I'm going to reference that because like we already talked about it. So that almost seemed... That film seems like the bit is king. You know what I mean? Like, they're not trying to make a, a broader point. They're literally just trying to deliver every frame has like a good quality bit attached to it. This is not really that same thing. It's much, much more heavily. So you said the other ones are really irreverent. This one is much more heavily structured and there's like set pieces in this one that don't have anything to do with the comedy so much, or they're really elaborate set pieces that have like a small bit of comedy. So the really like the intro like when, he's, when he's changing costumes and everything behind him is changing too, like quietly. Or I'm I'm thinking of like when they're inter- the, the the war battles. Yeah, scene. when they're introducing him, you know, finally as like the new the new leader, and they keep calling his name. And they have all the soldiers there waiting with the swords, and like everyone's looking, and then there's this kind of set, and he's asleep, and he like climbs down the fire pole. They do all this stuff for the setup, like oh, are we waiting for somebody? You know what I mean? And it's like a small setup. But it's it speaks to a larger idea, I think, than um, they were doing in something like Night of the Opera. And you're more well versed in this, so you could probably tell me if that's right or wrong. But this seemed like they're not. It wasn't just about the bit. It was about no, it's, it's it was about, about like a message. There was an allegory attached to, or well, yeah, a I metaphor think, attached to all. This I think stuff. when when um, <clears throat> Rufus is, you know, they're trying to get the line, the message across the lines, mm-hmm. and. Rufus says to him, you know, like, remember when you're out there, like, risking your life, we're going to be back here thinking about what a suck you are. <laughs> and I guess, like, that, like, a lot, like, this is what, 14 years after World War One, mm-hmm. and you're in the mix, you're in the crux of, of seeing a bubbling in Europe at this point. Um, 
around this. If you wanted to. Yeah. Well, maybe around this time, you know, like even even on the film system, um, Paramount's Papri with uh, the German films, with uh, the you know, the German film studios mm-hmm. has led to Goebbels' takeover of the film studios like, okay, around yeah, yeah. this time. You know, from, from the fallout of Metropolis and, uh, and whatnot. It's funny to think about how early this stuff happened. Yeah. And people were just like, I don't know. And, and so, like, it seems in, like the economy is pretty good. So Hollywood can kind of well, the economy was not good, but the economy was good for Hollywood because the only thing people could afford to go to is see was a movie. No, no, I mean um, like the economy. I'm talking about like Germany. Oh, right. Like I don't know. They're doing all right <laughs> yeah. over there. Um, so you see the rumblings in Hollywood, and there's even like the jokes like against like the code in this too, mm-hmm. like um, you know, not being able to show the man and woman in bed, so they show the man and horse in bed. Um, <laughs> So there is a lot of subversion in transgression, but this is just, it, it's striking that, that for me, like watching this as a, it's one of my first introductions to, to comedy, mm-hmm. like film comedy is, is this and Naked Gun mm. um, and like some of the John Hughes movies, um, you know, and like I can't, the John Hughes movies don't have much of an impact on me anymore. They're still like, you know, it's all those on my list. Um mm-hmm. Naked Gun still exists by its own merit, and, and this for me is like transformed into what what you know they're making a, a profound statement. Mm. You know, they they are saying something and they're doing it well. Um, is that the consensus? Do you think of because like I you know um, Roger Ebert? I, I wasn't able to read the Roy Bloat Jr. book. Um, mm-hmm. I, I tried to get a copy. I just could not find a copy. You heard you heard about that one? Euphoria. Mm-hmm. I think it's like oh, oh Euphoria. Um, like why uh, Duck Soup's the greatest war movie oh, really? of all time? Huh? Um, because like in Roger Ebert's great movies essay, he and it's in, it's one of his original great movies. He literally Hail, ne- Euphoria. He le- literally never mentions it. Like the fact that it's a war. Like he kind of mentions that they're going to war and like the general kind of plot, but he focuses primarily just on like Groucho and like his face and like what it kind of represents to the whole of comedy. And and that transition between the silent films and the and the talkies and how, uh, which I mean, it's there too. Like it, like there is a real presence of, and, and sense of, you know, even, you know, given the sense that Night at the Opera comes out, we talked about this about Night at the Opera. Yeah. Night at the Opera comes out two years later. Mm-hmm. Um, then we talked about the flatness of the film, how it's a flat film, and this one hundred percent is still retains that flatness. There is no dimensionality to the film. That initial scene of introducing Rufus. Um, where he kind of like stands with the king's guard, you uh-huh. know, see like, what are we waiting for? With he does, cigar, like, with his yeah. cigar, yeah. Um, like that's flat. It is. You are looking at a soundstage, and, and has you know, you go into day of the races, and you kind of transcend through the time of Marx Bros. And even like Night at the Opera has a bit of dimensionality. With kind of like that packed room, like gives a little element of depth. Uh-huh. To it. We talked about that. Yeah. Um, this is flat. So there is a a, a development. Like, I think throughout the, the, the filmography of the Marx Brothers, you can look at the transition from theater quality, like the theatricalness of a film, to mm-hmm. the presentation of a, of a dimensional media. Mm-hmm. And you can see that. that. That's fine. But I think this movie in particular needs to be pointed out for... I think all the other Marx Brothers movies can be used for that. You can look at Animal Crackers for... You know, it's flatness. The transition to monkey business has a little more of something you can't you can use in film and some more of like yeah. the film techniques. And then you know you can build from that. I think Duck Soup exists unto itself as a separate commentary. Well, and I think it's funny because I was just reading an, an interview, and it just um, 
it just came up. It wasn't anything that I planned to do. I was reading an interview with Paul Oster about his book, um, The Book of Illusions, which features like a silent film star in it. And Paul Oster makes the point that like the silent films are really like the purest expression of what film can do. And I was kind of thinking about that and marrying it to Roger Ebert's like ideas that like the Marx Brothers could only have existed in like the the talky era, um, where like Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton. Um, were the ideal kind of silent film stars, the presence of Groucho Marx dictates that he has to he has to say something. You know what I mean? He has to speak. Um, Have you read four three two one yet? By the way, just off. I've I've worked at it a little bit. I, <laughs> I've heard it's a challenge. Well, just not, I like some of the metaphysical stuff in Paul Auster's novels. I like some of the the subtle ma- magical realism that he puts in his books. It's um, deep too, right? It's, four th- it's yeah. long. Four th- it's like 800 pages. 4321 doesn't do any of that stuff. And I am i don't think Paul Oster is the ideal author to be reading like four life stories about. I think Philip Roth could do a book like that and do it really well. Just talking about those old guard writers. I mean, obviously Philip Roth is dead, so he's not going to do any, write anything anymore. But I think Philip Roth... That's what you think. <laughs> I think you know, he's, 80, he's 88 too and he's hanging out with Harold Bloom. I think Philip Roth could pull something like that off. I'm not sure that Paul Oster's writing style pulls allows him to pull this off. Like, I think the book... In the way that the, a book like that needs to be pulled off. Um, so I think I've, I've only ever gotten like halfway through the first, the first life that he's that he's articulating. So it's um, kind of like your problem with it. It's my problem with like twenty six sixty six. I just finished reading that again. Also, I can't, I can't, I can't get through it. I'm um, trying to. But I think it's I think it's interesting. I would love to have a conversation. I think it's interesting to look at something like Metropolis, which obviously was a silent film, versus something like. Duck Soup, where you can layer those metaphors and those allegories and that commentary um, in a much different, much more subversive, but also like much more out in the open way than you probably could have with a silent film. You know what I mean? Like you would have to know if you're, if you're watching a silent film, you would have to know what everything means to get like the intertextual meaning of everything that like is happening on screen. In Duck Soup, now that you're mentioning it, you know, Groucho's delivery tells you, like, what it is. Like what it is you know what I mean? It's because it's sarcastic, but it's also re- it's, it's sarcastic and cutting, um, which immediately says to a viewer, like, he's, a, like, he's against this. You know what I mean? This is something that he's... This is, a, this is the satire, and he's on like, one side, and like, whatever he's satiring is on the other. Um, and I just think it's really, I think it's interesting to think about with like all the stuff that you brought it. Cause I didn't really necessarily see it as like a war movie, but like, I don't think as a silent film, it doesn't, it wouldn't re- really work so much as a war movie. You yeah. know what I mean? It's, you have to have that verbal satire to kind of, well, those musical numbers and whatnot, like using, using like the all God's children, like, like work so much and, and using, you know, like some of the visual satires work, but using the, the laws of the administration and just using some of the, the quick throwaway gags they use in it the like, throwaway comments they use in it mm-hmm. works to accentuate what's being said that mm-hmm. you know there is a class of people who will not be fighting and they will veil on nationalism and patriotism this is like such an anti-nationalist sort of like film mm. um 
you know, paint on that, that thin veil of like, do this, you know, for, for country, you know, like the constant repeating of the Fredonia anthem and whatnot, <laughs> you know, like it, it hammers home, like the fact that this country is bullshit and it has no money and it's, it's nothing. But, you know, like, they're still stuck to their their patriotic ties. And nobody's paying attention. And so nobody's noticing that, like, Rufus is is admitting constantly that he has no idea what he's doing. He's taking advantage of the situation for his own gain. Yeah, from the word go, he says that, you know? Um, And it's just that stuff, you know, from a history of film standpoint, we haven't talked about, like, the history of film in, like, a long time. We're going to be doing a lot more. (laughs) Better get on that. Um is really interesting that transition between those two those two modes of filmmaking and how it influences the ability to deliver that kind of message. I think is is yeah. And I, I mean, I didn't really think about that. I, I, I was coming to this from the no, no, no. Film. I just I was literally no, just yeah. Yeah, I just came up with it um, last day. That is intriguing because it is hard to think about like how you would do this from just a visual perspective. Like there, there's the visual jokes, like the the cutting off of the pocket serves it in in reference to the dialogue, you know, mm-hmm. like this is a movie carried by its dialogue. Like it has the visual sight gags and obviously has the gags that work from a silent film perspective, but those exist outside of what the movie's actually saying. Mm-hmm. Um, and everything the movie's actually trying to, you know, speak of speak about, you know, is, is carried by its dialogue. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and duck soup doesn't exist without that. Like there's a reason why, well, like five of the lines are suggested for like the hundred years, hundred mm. lines, yeah, you yeah. know. Um, so yeah, this is, and, and you can't mention you know the cultural effect it has on it. You get the Animaniacs. The duck soup is the reason why you have Yakko. Well, duck soup is um... Animaniacs. Yakko. Uh, there's a uh, you watch Animaniacs as a kid, right? Yeah, I did. I love Animaniacs. There's an entire episode dedicated to duck soup. I feel like I want to sing the. Chi- I feel like I've sang the Chicken Boo song on this podcast. Maybe, I hope so. Maybe two times. <laughs> um, God, I was just thinking about what movie was it? That We're we- not going to talk about the fucking fact that Woody Allen tried to pretend Bananas was a sequel. Woody Allen, go fuck himself. I, we're not Woody Allen people. But I was, I was thinking. We, I By that, we mean Woody Allen's not a good filmmaker. Come at us, bro. I don't. I think that's. I don't know. Uh, he's made two movies I found entertaining. I think people of a certain generation are pretty okay with the fact that Woody Allen is not great. You know and what I mean? all the people are old and wrong. And the people that are old and wrong, though, are the people that have just kind of like, they were Woody Allen people for a really long time. So it's the same thing with the people that don't want to admit that Bill Cosby fucked up. They're just like, well, I, what would I do with my the last like 20 years of my life? Like, I worshipped this guy. I watch wor- better movies? Yeah, I guess. Just spend the rest of it watching better movies. You don't have to watch Hannah and her sisters again. Um... You don't have to subject yourself to deconstructing Harry. No, no, yeah, no, you don't have to. You don't. You definitely don't. These have people to do convince it. themselves that's a good movie. I like. I mean, I think Crimes and Misdemeanors is a pretty good movie. It's fine. I, for I remember, it's fine. I like. I said I literally liked Matchpoint and um, Vicky Christina Barcelona, and I, that is it. I didn't like either of those movies, but Diane Weist has two Oscars, which is good. I like Diane Weist. I like Diane Weist. It's positive. I wish Diane Weiss had made her Oscars off of like a Robert Altman movie or something like that instead, but or a Charlie Kaufman movie. But well, that's we're not there yet. <laughs> we're not there yet. But well, she made her Oscars off a of David or Russell movie. How'd you feel about that? <sighs> Jesus, that's like a that's like a 
curse. That's like a corrupt a wish sort of thing. No, he. I mean, he was doing good work there for getting people Oscars for a while. But now, now he's not. But <laughs> now people are like David O. Russell. But yeah. Um, well, that went that went in a different direction. Well, because we, that's why we talk, we discuss it before every episode, but we're going to talk about first, you know, what movie. And, and I think there's, Duck Soup exists, on, Duck Soup speaks for itself. It's not, there's not a lot, of, you watch Duck Soup, you know it's being an anti-war. Well, and even if you've never seen, I think the interesting thing, the war thing is interesting for you and me who have seen Duck Soup a couple of times. Or for anyone that's seen Duck Soup a couple that of times. That was my first time watching It's it. interesting to reconsider Duck Soup from like a, a different perspective than you're normally thinking of it, because you're normally just thinking of it as a comedy. Um... But if you've never seen um, Duck Soup before, you're really watching. And I told this to my kids. It's like you're watching a, like a very significant film. Like a lot of stuff comes out of stuff like Duck Soup. They've a lot of even and I didn't obviously me and my kids did not have a conversation about Thirty Rock. But like you know, I watch a lot of Thirty Rock to unwind. At the end of the day, I'll just put a Thirty Rock episode on before I go to bed or before I start reading something. Um, and there's stuff that they're doing then. Like, in terms of, they're, like, aping the mirror scene. You know what I mean? People have been aping the mirror scene for, like, since the day that they did it. It's just a thing that you do now. It's just part of the culture. And I forget which movie we were talking about where this was the same thing. Like, this happens in movies sometimes where these things just become so ingrained in the culture that you, you, you... If you've never seen Duck Soup before and you watch it the first time, you will probably think you've seen Duck Soup before. Yeah. You know what I mean? You will have this weird suspicion that you've already seen this movie because you've seen a bunch of other movies that are doing all the stuff that's happening in Duck Soup. You know, it's just, it's one of the facts of of living in a culture, especially in a, the movie culture is interesting because it has, they haven't been making movies for like even a hundred, you know. I guess it's been a hundred years. It's been right? all over hundred now. But like, we haven't gotten a hundred years away from duck soup, and they're still doing duck soup things all the time. Isn't that weird to think we are six years away from the hundredth anniversary of Metropolis? Should we make it? They should try to build it into <laughs> the MCU somehow. Actually, that'd be great if, if after we film last episode of Pivotal Film, we get a call. It's like Cameron going, "Here's three million dollars. We make make Metropolis." And we'd be like, "Listen, James." This is also this is also how James Cameron talk. We make. And, and someone's in the background being, stop talking like that. You shout it too. I'm James. I'm James Cameron. James Cameron. See Avatar 3. Only in 15D. We recreate the Big Bang. You like similarities? We got a new Are Big you, Bang um, for you. Are you going to see Avatar 2 and 3? I hope not. I, I will if this podcast demands it. I won't. You'll be seeing that on your own. I'm not sitting through another Avatar movie. Yeah. There's been several movies that I've gone to where in the middle of the movie I've said this, oh my god, and that was one of those movies. I hate that movie. I hate that movie so much. I agree. I don't hate Duck Soup, though. No, I don't hate Duck Soup. Either. And I don't think we, you hate your number 56 either. Um, I don't, I don't love it, <laughs> okay. but I don't hate it. Well, that's good to know. We'll be right back with that. Welcome back. My number 56, we're going to do, I think, a little bit differently, and we'll see how this goes. Interpretive dance, interpretive dance, interpretive dance. <laughs> and you're going to have to guess how I'm dancing just by like the sounds in my microphone. Or Mario's going to describe it to you while I dance. Oh, Tom, I didn't realize they made that many abs. <laughs> I didn't realize they made that those few abs, ladies. Um, 
My number fifty six is uh, the two th- uh, two thousand <laughs> the nineteen ninety seven Gus Van Zant film Goodwill Hunting. This is the one about the kid that that goes that does the school shielding. No, but we we're going to talk about that. Okay, we're going to talk about Elephant a little bit, not not a lot, but just like I'm going to mention. Um, so Gus Van Zant wait, movie. let's play the trailer real quick. On the campus of one of America's leading universities. There is a problem on the main hallway chalkboard. Took my colleagues and I more than two years to prove it. I'm hoping that one of you might prove it by the end of the semester. The most gifted mind to ever enter its classrooms. This is correct. Who did this? Is the person who cleans its floors. I just need the name of this guy who works in my building. Got this job through his PO, you can call him. PO? Parole officer. So the it thing, isn't your fault. The thing Matt that Damon. the thing that I want to do differently, Mario, is that normally I would start with a story here, but I think one of the things I want to point out about this movie is that I am not like in love with this movie. This is not one of those movies that like it, it was on my list immediately, but it was one of those movies that I don't really feel great. I don't feel great about the fact that it's on my list. Accidental you know I mean? tourist situation. A little bit of accidental tourist situation, but accidental tourist situation comes with a much more obvious like um representation of 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 what it means to me as a film this film is much more complicated and leads to other films which are not as pivotal because i don't think they're as good and i'm not as attached to them but they made me think of things beyond what goodwill hunting was offering me so to start, I mean, who doesn't know, know the story of Goodwill Hunting? Matt Damon plays Will Hunting. Uh, um, he is a super genius uh, who has been in and out of the, you know, foster care system his whole life and has been abused and is now uh, an emotional wreck and is working as a janitor at MIT. He is revealed to be a genius and is taken under his wing by. Professor Gerald Lambeau played um, kind of weirdly excellently by Stellan Skarsgård. Kind of put Stellan Skarsgård on American audiences' map there. Um, he has a friend named... I'm part of the... Now the Skarsgård dynasty. Isn't that weird to think about? It's, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. They're taking over. There's four of them now? Right? I, feel like there's a, I feel like there's a Skarsgård every ten there's seconds. There's five of them! I mean, there's there's three famous ones. There's Walter. Who's Walter Skarsgård? What are you doing? Um, he's 23 and he's a gymnast? Oh, we're doomed. We're all, we're all in trouble. Uh, he's got a friend a... named Chucky, played by Ben Affleck. Uh, he's got another friend named Morgan, played by Casey Affleck. You can get a Cole Hauser appearance here a couple of times. He says a couple of words. He says a couple of words a couple of times. And that's Which is always like the... of his dialogue. I'm sorry, that's not always the best use of Cole Hauser. No. But maybe it is. Have you seen Pitch Black? I've seen Pitch Black, yeah. The best use of Cole Hauser is he says is a pitch, couple of words. Is Pitch Black. Um, Minnie Driver plays the love interest. She is a student at Harvard. Um, she is not as brilliant as Will Hunting. And that makes her a little uncomfortable. Because she has to study really hard, and he doesn't have to study at all. And that is like Mozart. Um, you get an awesome George Plimpton rocking out like a therapist role here. 
it's pretty good. And then, I guess most importantly, you get a Robin Williams performance as Sean McGuire, who is a colleague of Professor Lambeau. Um, or he used to be a friend of Professor Lambeau when they were both in college together, and now one of them is winning Fields medals, and the other one is teaching at uh, Bunker Hill Community College, which I've been to. Um, it is looks a lot like it does in the movie and is really hard to get in and out of and that's all I'll say about Bunker Hill Community College um, and he is from the same place as Matt Damon he's from Southie and he helps Matt Damon realize that it is not his fault and all the walls he put up to protect himself he doesn't need to put up he can open himself up to love and affection um, from Skyler and he can have a good life. He doesn't have to be, you know, ashamed of his gift. He can exploit that gift to get corporate money from any number of think tanks or military organizations that want to use him for code breaking or whatever. Um, all that stuff I really don't give a shit about. I, I, I don't think I bought this story one time in my whole life. Even when I was a teenager seeing it for the first time, I was never like, holy shit, like a poor kid that's super smart? That's a really clever idea. Um, what got me here, and I'm interested, I'm gonna, I'll, I want to hear your opinion of the movie after I, I, I talk about this a little bit. What got me here is, and I don't, I'm not a Gus Van Zandt guy. Are you, are you, I don't think you're a Gus Van Zandt guy either, right? Like, the only other movie that he's made... I like two of his other movies. I like My Own Private Idaho, and I like Elephant. And I think the only one... What, you just asked me? Yeah. <laughs> just for the sake of the podcast. Let's pretend Did that they don't know we've had this conversation a hundred times. Ask me if I'm a Gus Van Zandt. Yeah, no. You know, every time every time I hear Gus Van Zandt, I'm just like, oh, God. I'm gonna rewatch the Psycho remake. Mm. All that, guys. Paranoid Park's on. I like it. So the only movie that I think that Gus I like is, one of his movies. I like one of his movies, and I thought Elephant was interesting. I thought, and that's the thing. I think Elephant was I like, interesting. I like Milk. Okay, and I I like Milk, but I don't think Milk had. I don't think he had anything to do with Milk. No, I don't think so. You either. know what I mean? Just kind of. Like I think how, he was just like, oh, look at all these actors I have for Milk. Yeah, and just how I think. And a good script. Milk own, has a good script. But too. I think my own private Idaho is a little bit like that too, where in the sense that he got a bunch of really amazing performances out of that movie. Um, I don't think I. I don't think I've ever sat down and watched my problem private. Oh, you I mean it's it's good because you get I mean you get a the Keanu Reeves uh, River Phoenix thing is 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 Boy, real. I hated Drugstore Cowboy and I just figured my own private never, Idaho. Was yeah, I never liked Drugstore Cowboy either. But I'm not like a Matt Dillon guy either. Like the I was Jack built was. I was like I wasn't. That changed that changed things a little bit. Um, like Kevin Dillon guy. How about Kevin Dillon? Kevin Dillon guy. Big entourage person. Oh my god. Now it's in my head. I hope I can get it out. Are you a Gus Van Zandt guy? Well, you're the man now, dog. Why I say that? <laughs> oh no, I thought about it. man now, dog. <laughs> we should do a contest. Who does the best Sean Connery in Finding Forrester impression? You're the man now, dog. You're the man now, dog. You know, the name just, of this episode is "You're the Man Now." That dog. website just recently closed down, by the way. Which one? You're the man. U M T N D. Is that a thing? What? I don't How'd know. you miss the early two thousands? I didn't. I was. I didn't. I was you remember memes and gifs? No, I'm not a meme and gif guy. I'm not on the internet all the time. Um, the thing for me about this movie, and I don't know whose fault it is. I'm gonna assume that it is partially Gus Van Zandt's fault. I'm gonna assume it's partially the cinematographer's fault. Um, 
could be a bunch of people's fault. The atmosphere and the tone of the movie and the color, which I'm going to attribute to the atmosphere, um, got under my skin. Like a lot. Like it... Like a like a bacteria or something. You know what I mean? Like a, like a, an infection that was under your skin that like caused bumps. That like were raised up and you could see. And you could kind of track its progress up your arm. You know what I mean? Because it just gets bumpier and weirder. And it's getting closer to your face. And you're kind of concerned about it. Um, the atmosphere and the tone of this movie are a pivotal thing for me. To the point where I like would seek out I knew I wanted more of this stuff. I actually wanted my life to be reminiscent of the atmosphere and tone of Goodwill Hunting. You know what I mean? The kind of the kind of overly bright but like faded burnished gold that's kind of in all of the oh daytime scenes, you know what I mean? Um, the fucking poster. But here's what we'll here's where I'll go though and we'll we'll dig the conversation. Well, I'll dig a big hole for myself. This is the first time for right or wrong for whatever reason, that I understood exactly how the screenplay worked. Like, what it was doing, I could, I could see it. I, I, I immediately went out and bought the shooting scripts. Like, you know, that was a thing that you could do back then. You could go to a bookstore and they had Don't you a whole section that? of scripts. Don't you miss I being do able miss to do that? that. And they were cheap. They were like five bucks. They were not, yeah. I mean, and even the ones that were published by real publishing companies, weren't, they weren't like charging you a lot of money for it. Like, a lot the of times they were, just, they were just like in the script form and they were, oh, that was awesome. I had so many shooting scripts. Now you can now just get just, them online. Now free, yeah. But you um, can't. But yeah, I, print off your own pages. That's probably more expensive than $5. It probably is. Um, Paper costs a lot. I just bought toner today. It was like $41. Um, black. I So it was the first time I ever kind of said, holy shit. Like, I get it. I see how this is working. Each that's of like the, I said with uh, Lion King and music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's, it's actually kind of a perfect... It goes together. Like, I can... It's weird when that happens. When you can kind of see, like... All these scenes match together, and they put this scene here because this is going to do this, and then the next scene after that's going to do this, and this person's saying this because, like, a couple scenes later they're going to say this, and then it's going to lead to this, and then there's the end. You know what I mean? And it was just really fucking weird, and I felt really weird, but I felt it was like the invigorated. It was it was my thing now, and that was my thing. And you're saying that you were the man now, dog. I was the man now, dog. Um, but. I understood that I could never... I wanted to write movies after that. We talked a little bit about last week with adaptation. That was kind of part of my, my love of adaptation. I, after seeing Goodwill Hunting, I wanted to write movies. I just wanted to do it. And I wanted to write movies kind of like Goodwill Hunting. Are we doing it? What? We're, we're going we're gonna to launch our Kickstarter for we're our do, film? Yeah. Goodwill Hunting 2. That's three. Just starting. They've already made two. Just starting Tom and Mario. You didn't see... You didn't say Jane Silent Bob Strike Back? Which uh, was a good oh, one I thought it was called too. Dogma. But, um, no, Jane Silent Bob Strike Back has... Oh, right, right, yeah. Oh, my God. I forgot about Jane Silent Bob. Hunting season. Hunting season. How'd you forget Shannon Elizabeth and Allie Larder? I just... Movie. And then Kevin Smith's wife. Who's Kevin Smith's wife? And Eliza Dushku. Eliza Dushku, yeah. She no, was they were the person. four, like, uh... Yeah, 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 yeah. Vixen, uh... Like, yes. Cat burglars. I do remember that. And then it was replicated in that Jimmy Fallon movie, Taxi. 
several years later. No, we will not be talking about that movie. Um, but I knew even then. Do you know slowly internet culture has been calling that one of the worst movies ever made? Taxi? That's a good reason. Yeah. Fine. Yeah, good. Good. Very good. Um, but Gis- even then, sorry. Giselle just couldn't cut it as an actress, apparently. Um, even then I knew... And this was before I was like like a serious musician. I was just kind of like a, a, a kid, a drummer back then. I had a little bit of like that DIY like spirit about me. Like I wasn't gonna. I didn't think to myself ever I could make a movie like Goodwill Hunting. I always knew I had to go a step down. You know what I mean? I had to find a way to make this happen on my own. And this is not to say, people, that there is like a Tom Nolan independent movie on YouTube somewhere. There 100% isn't. I never got to that point. There's no no independent Mario, Mario yeah. Ponzi movies yeah, on you YouTube go. either. Oh, yeah, there are, though. You should look on the Twitter. <clears throat> um, we'll talk about those later. Maybe we'll do a special bonus episode analyzing your, <laughs> your movies. That would be awesome. Um, Have you watched any of them? No, you've never, like, you mentioned them and then that's it. You right mention there. them and then you change the subject. They exist in Ether. Um, and Ether is Ether is an independent film website. Um, so then I went, went backwards. And this is when I kind of got into vaguely... Not into, but like... This is where I became super aware of Kevin Smith. Because I knew that Clerks and Kevin Smith movies were talkies and that they were cheap. But I didn't like them. They didn't make me happy. I didn't buy them. I didn't think that these were real people I didn't accept I, I couldn't forgive like narrative flaws and dialogue weirdness um, for the sake that he did it on the cheap and for himself but that is when I found I think what I would call and we're not going to call this officially this but if I was in my mind this episode for me number 56 is a two movie episode where it's Goodwill Hunting, and then the movie I mentioned to you earlier, which is The Brothers McMullen. The Ed Burns 1995 Sundance winning jury prize Sundance winning film that he made for $25,000. Didn't pay any of his actors, made most of it in his parents' house and on streets where he could film for free. Um... You know, wrote the script himself. Had I think you know, what, I think he said like five people on set at any given time. This was my my model, Mario. This was this is what I wanted to do with my whole life, and I am Tom Nolan. So I jumped into this idea of living this independent filmmaker's life, making really cheap movies um, with all all of my feet. All of the feet I could find, I just jumped straight into the, the pool. So I got, I got my, um, you know, how to shoot a feature film under $10,000 and not go to jail book. You ever see that book? I have not. It's, it's, I, I shook my it's head as though audio can book. tell. I got my independent feature film production book. It's like a $30, like a textbook about like independent feature films. I don't remember anything that was in it. I just, I knew that I had it. I got my Ed Burns three screenplays books with that Brothers McMullen and She's the One. And uh, I think it's Never Look Back is like the third movie of that movie that he just made the same movie like three times in a row. I got... Is Brothers McMullen any good? Um, it's pretty good. It's not as good as... I, 
it's not as good as Goodwill Hunting, which is why Goodwill Hunting's on this list and not The Brothers McMullen. Because I understand that The Brothers McMullen is not like a great movie. But it influ- it's aesthetic influence my thinking about stuff. It's got a 27-year-old Connie Britton. Can't be too bad. And it was her first, I think it was her first, maybe not her first movie, but like, she did it for free. She did it for free. Um, I, will, I will say that 12-year-old Mario watching Spin City was a big Connie Britton fan. See, and I was just a big Alan Ruck fan. I was watching Spin oh, City. Oh, that's the reason I, I started. That's the reason I started movie. watching Spin City was because of him and Michael J. Fox. I wish all these other people were out of the way so Alan Ruck can just riff. By the end of it, I, I left for, with Connie Britton and um, Heather Locklear. No, not Heather Locklear. She was the secretary. Oh, um, not Jennifer Esposito. I don't remember. Keep talking. Doesn't matter. Um. So you know, I got my, I got Final Draft. Remember that that program, Final Draft. I did. I had Final Draft myself. You did my it. You had it. Oh, I had. It. I loved Final Draft. It made everything so Jennifer easy. Jennifer Esposito. I was right. Good job, Mario. Put it up. Um, we both had Final Draft, and you remember Jennifer Esposito. It was a good night. Um, I got, like I said before, I got my my brochures. She was married to Bradley Cooper. Oh, sorry, Jennifer you Esposito. F- wait, hold on a second. Fuck you, Bradley Cooper. <laughs> Lucky fuck. Why his life stinks? It's a turmoil. Yeah, it's all it's all a, it's all been downhill since two thousand seven. His life for is a quagmire. Bradley Cooper of of conflicting emotions. Ever since two thousand seven, he starred in good comedy Wedding Crashers, and his see that's life the, the that shit. is when I started. I hated Bradley Cooper after Wedding Crashers. I hated him. He's good in Wedding Crashers. I attributed his character in Wedding Crashers to his actual personality, which is probably true. I think so too. Yeah. I also um. Something that I did, which you probably know. Maybe you don't know as much as, like, JP and the other guys in my band know. But I dream big and stupidly. So even though I had only written, like, a movie. You know what my movie was called that I worked on for a long time? Hmm. It was called The Velvet Waltz. It was named after a Built to Spill song. And it was very bad. You know my long movie? How long? How many How many pages was your, was your final? Like, a I mean, not like way too many, like 300, like 130. Oh, so 130 minutes. Yeah, I know. My longest long. was 90 minutes. It was called The Long Wait. Set in a desert. Mm-hmm. Never felt refilmed for th- three weeks on it. You did? And only got through 20 minutes of film before everyone quit on me. Yeah. It was my Waiting for Godot Redux, where God shows up at the end. <laughs> Because I always put happy messages at the end of my movies huh. back in college. I don't know why. Yeah. Because I, I was like, I was being transgressive by being, by being happy. happy. Mm. What were you watching when you were, like, what was like? Oh, this was this was my summer. This was my summer of of shit. <laughs> We've talked about this before off air. I had a summer after a breakup. We talked about Sunday. Oh, yeah, I read, yeah. Right, a like, little bit. Yeah, American yeah. Psycho and uh, Perfume, Story of a Murderer, uh, Naked Lunch, The Roads, uh, Child, Child of God. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a tough... Yeah, that, we have talked about this. Yeah. Um, and so I just started like, you know what I'm going to write? A bunch of shit with happy stuff. Nice. Cool. Um, it's also, I'm going to be honest, I reread that script a few years ago. Not half bad. I don't have my script anymore. I really wish I had it. I was remember remember writing scripts though. Remember how thick they got? 
What do you mean? Do I remember? No, no. Like, do you remember like, when I you, still, I still write scripts. But when you printed them out, like back in the, you know, in the early two thousands, when it oh, was right, okay right. to just I, have everything. When you had a printer. When you, when you had a printer. When you could, when you could afford to print stuff. And you just printed it out. It was this huge, thick thing, and you had all the. the but it felt good. Oh, it was awesome. It was so good, and it had, you know, the title page was. It was right there, and you're like a film by oh, I did Mario Ponzi. I didn't put the title page. You didn't do a title page? No, I was always been cheap. Oh. I've always been cheap. I put the title on top of the very first oh, page of the script. come on, Mario. Come on. Paper. No much pages. It's goes. one page paper. I put my scripts on <laughs> both you, sides. Did you bind it with a rubber band and not like three-hole punch with the fasteners in it? Um, did, you do the, did you just splurge for some fasteners? No, I, I, I would... Uh, do a, a snap clip. Oh my god! How do you live with yourself? Affordably. You know what's funny? Because that's the difference I think a little bit between you and me. I'm insane, and you're very rational about this stuff. So the thing that literally I was going to say next is I before I even finished before we even finished this thing, I imagined myself not going to the Sundance Film Festival with my thing, going to the Slam Dance Film Festival, which is that film festival that runs concurrently to oh, Sundance. Yeah, yeah. Also at Park City, but which is much much more independent. I, I like had all this material. Like I had made it. Like I'd already made my movie and I was ready to submit it. I had all the submission stuff. I was like, it's just it's just a matter of time. I'm gonna do it. Of course I'm gonna do it. And and that was and that's kind of how I've operated my whole life. <laughs> based off of like this was like the first thing that I ever like wanted to like I was like, this is what I'm gonna fucking do. I'm gonna make I'm gonna write. I'm gonna write movies. No, that's I'm fair. I'm gonna do it, and it was. I mean, I have all, my moment with that too. It was all Goodwill Hunting's fault, and I, I think that's fair. I okay. I want to talk about this more. Yo, tough, yeah, tough. Yeah, I really want to get this done. That Goodwill Hunting is not a really good movie. It's really well acted. I, I find it boring. I think it's, it's, it's pretty really, well acted. I. Robin Williams is doing really great work. It's here. the Stellan one Sarsgaard. movie I like. Robin Williams. In. It's one of. Three, I like Rob Williamson. Mrs. Doubtfire's got four. One of four, I like. What's one of the other ones? I like his his trilogy of drama. Oh, like one hour photo and one hour photo insomnia. Insomnia. uh, Death Smoochie. Okay, yeah. Those are you know. Right, and like he's fun in, in our stuff. And uh, you know he's in, in Dead Poet Society is is whatever it is. You know it's not great, but it's it's like iconic, dramatic Williams at this point. <laughs> That's the sound I made during Avatar. All right, continue. Um, you know, like Ben Affleck's doing what Ben Affleck's doing, but like everyone else's support, like Minnie Driver. I typically wasn't a big Minnie Driver person. Minnie Driver's not bad. No, she sold it good. Yeah. Um, Gus Van Zant knows how to put actors together and just let them do whatever they're going to do. And and the script is is palp- very palpable in, in the sense of it's digestible. It's so inoffensive and so like there and so, it's so like it's segmented just, and, and and it's it's just so easy like not it's in easy a, but not it's in not a bad, a bad way. way no 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 it's easy in the sense that like jinx oh give me a coke um oh fuck i forgot about your little weird rules we can't um we can't name the podcast no, 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 no. um it's so easy because the emotions i think because ben affleck and matt damon had like spent so long with the script the emotions were all very easy for them to get to so you didn't have to wonder what they were like, who these people were. You understood implicitly like who these people were. Um, I think one of the flaws in the direction, and I, I want to get, I want to talk about your, your, whatever you want to talk about. Um, 
in regards to like you know movie making or script writing or whatever. Um, I think it's really funny. I don't know if you've picked up on this, like how idyllic Gus Van Zant makes like South Boston feel, and like yeah, the lives of these guys yeah. feel so idyllic. And it's like, I don't think they have any money. I'm pretty sure these guys are fairly poor, and their lives really fucking stink. And, and Ben Affleck's speech at the end of the movie dictates that he wishes he didn't have to live this life. So I'm not sure what all of like the imagery in the the score. Well, isn't like famously is doing? Isn't it famous that like a bunch of people, like a bunch of famous filmmakers, came in and like, don't do this, do this thing. Well, so the sc- like Rob Reiner was like, take all the thriller parts of it. Right, the, the original script, to, like the last and third, had, like, was FBI like, stuff. And Terrence Malick was like, hey, you know, like calm down with like the the bromance. Mm. Yeah, 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 which is smart. That's the best. You know, that's smart um, not to have. And I think what they came up with is a good movie. And again, it's one of those things where like. It's- Serviceable. I don't, and that's always been my problem. With Gus Van Zandt. It's Gus Van Zandt makes very serviceable movies. Did you see Sea of Trees? Like his most recent movie, or the one before? Uh, he won't get far on foot. It's that Matthew McConaughey and Matthew McConaughey and Ken Watanabe movies. Him? I thought Sea yeah. of Trees was. Sea of Trees was. Why him. did I keep thinking Sea of Trees was Malick? Oh, it's not. That would be awesome. If you Terrence know, Malick made a suicide movie. You no, know, pisses Japan. me off about Gus Van Zandt is, is, is Gus Van Zandt makes movies. Lately, where the t- yeah, see a tree. Where titles make me think that they're like getting mixed up with Malick movies, and I'm like, oh, blah, blah. and I'm like, no, not a Gus Van Zant movie. <laughs> but even Steve Trees is like, it's okay. It's not. I mean, the, I the Rotten one. Tomatoes score is terrible, and I guess in its way, it is. Ooh. It's not. <laughs> in its way, it's terrible, but it's earnest. Dull, maudlin. Um, I can't Maudlin and fundamentally envy. The Sea of Trees extinguishes the contributions of a talented cast and marks a depressing low point in director Gus Van Dan's career. That seems hard. But it's... This guy made To Die For, and you and guys are saying that's his low point? Yeah. I, I mean To Die For, not friends. Um, <laughs> to Die For and Nicole Kidman are not friends. And that's like Nicole Kidman's like breakout role. But I think that... He's a he's an earnest filmmaker. He means what he's doing. He's not doing anything accidentally. The only movie I think oh, he's he, a Batman Forever. Same the, year. The only thing he ever Die for is your breakout role, right? Ninety five, yeah. But what's so he the might have been one? Batman Forever that year. She might have been Batman Forever that it year. It is too. that year. Yeah. I'm just wondering her breakout role would have been. Days of Thunder? No, it's not a breakout role. I mean she has dead calm. What did I say to die for is when she became like a star. Yeah, probably. Okay. And then Australia, so you know. Australia's like, like ten years later. <laughs> Uh, it's, it's, Nobody becomes a star off of Boz Lerman. It's Days of Thunder. Well, actually, if, to be perfectly honest, she probably did become like a, a movie star after Moulin Rouge. But we're not going to have that conversation. I want to say To Die For made her a big name. To Die For made her a big name. Being married to Tom Cruise made her a big name. But I think Moulin Rouge made her like someone that like could sell a movie. Oh, To Die For didn't do that well. I thought To Die For was a huge success. Let's get back on point. Um, Joaquin Phoenix is in that movie? I don't remember that. Did you that. know Joaquin Phoenix is in that movie? I fucking raced that movie from my mind, oh, man. Oh, man. We have a different conversation. Um, what were you going to say? Because oh. I think the point, of, the point I was going to say is that I, this is a, it's a, it's a, serviceable is a good word. Um, like, very adequate is a good word. Satisfactory is a good word. But it, I pulled stuff out of it that I can't shake loose. And it has nothing to do with Matt Damon or, like, really the acting. The acting is fine. It's those intangible things about a movie, which some of the subsequent movies that we're going to talk about um, later in the list 
like had those things and they were directly and I could sense them when I was watching it like my love of this scene is from is all from Goodwill Hunting you know what I mean and I think a lot of my but then Goodwill Hunting pushed my like my hunt for an aesthetic my hunt for meaning into these these smaller places like these Brothers McMullen places these teeny tiny places where like a lot of meaning a lot of meaning doesn't exist you know what I mean um or not, which is ah oh, that's a fucking stupid thing to say um it, it my aesthetic was simultaneously both things it was this kind of I want to live in a world that looks like this and feels like this but I want to be able to get there with $25,000 there's two movies uh, that in the same way pushed me to want to make little movies mm. Because I wanted to do effects nearly to that level, knowing I had much less money than them. Mm-hmm. And that's why I can appreciate you having Goodwill Hunting. Like I said, Goodwill Hunting for me is an okay movie. Mm. It just, there's not much to talk about for me with it. I think it's fine. I'm okay with it when it wins in the Oscars. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, whatever. Those two movies, three movies actually, High Tension. Alexander Asia. Huh. Martin Scorsese's Casino. And Claire Denise Trouble Every Day. Those are the three movies that made me want to be make a movies. Just because I was like, I can do effects like that. I want I want to do effects like that with nothing. Mm. All three of those movies aren't particularly good movies. Well, I mean, uh, we will trouble, talk trouble every we'll day talk about, was probably made for nothing. Yeah, we'll talk about or have talk about who knows when that episode's going to air. But we'll talk about trouble every day at some point mm. in an ethereal future. I think trouble every day now there are Claire Denis discussion exists outside of space-time. I think in a lot of ways it already happened. Yeah. And has it has been happening forever. It has been happening for like 3 months the now. The second that episode launches, the world, the big rip will happen. Hawking radiation will come out of every black Listen, hole. I'm fucking ready. I'm ready to go. Blame my internet. My internet's back, so we're good. <laughs> um, so those three movies really... Oh, I didn't mean ready to go like to do the episode. I mean ready to go like for radiation to start spouting off through black holes and open the sidewalk. Let's do it. The death of the universe just would lead to another universe, man. It's like, like time's a flat circle. Um, but I might not know it, and I'm okay with it. Well, I'm just, if just Angel continue. or a demon came to you in the middle of the night and said, this life you led and life you led ever would... would you, no, if a spirit came to you and said, life you led... A little Nietzsche for you. Um, is that so spoke? That spoke exactly what it said? Yeah, whatever. I don't know. Uh, but I get it. I get it. I get the, the inspiration. Mm. It's, it's interesting, though. You look back on those movies and you're like, why? What? Why? That's how why? I feel why? about it. Why this? But when I put it on, I'm just like, well, I'm back. And it's not every scene... You know what I mean? It's it's just some scenes, but all those scenes like I'll see. I bring, I just put, kind of a, I put trouble every day on, and I'm like, oh, I get it for different reasons. Um, like I, I look at high tension or casino again. I still like casino a lot. Casino juggled back and forth from always popping on my list. Mm. Um, casino is my Goodfellas. Uh, mm-hmm. Just a better movie um, by a significant margin. Um, not significantly significant margin. Because of the Don Rickles factor. <laughs> Just the Joe Bob Briggs factor. Um, <laughs> but I look back at those movies and I'm like, I don't know what inspired me. But you you, you never know. You never know the things no, that, you that, don't. that trigger you. Like I wasn't, I mean, 
So I, I definitely, I probably saw this in nineteen. I didn't see it in theaters, so I probably saw it in nineteen ninety eight. But in nineteen ninety eight, I was a junior in high school. I was, or maybe even a sophomore in high school when I saw it. Um, and there's things, there's aesthetic things in here. I saw here. this as a double feature, uh, not in theaters, but um, a double blockbuster feature. With what? What else? I watched Kill Bill Hunting first, and I was like, nah. And then I watched Gattaca, and I was like, Oh, Gattaca! It's like I kind of like this. I don't yeah. know why I like Gattaca. Gattaca's all right. I listened to a whole podcast. Isn't Gattaca kind of movie you're like, that was all right, and you're, you come back to you're like, I don't still know, like that you still say that's all right, and you're like, but why? No, I feel like the opposite with Gattaca. I've found, see, here's the thing. So Gattaca, I was interested because I just went back to Gattaca because I was listening to this podcast, um, the Dave Chang podcast, you know, the, the, the chef Dave Chang. He's got a podcast, um, and he was talking to his friend David Cho, the artist, and they were talking about how Gattaca has become like um there's a certain line in Gattaca I guess at the end of the movie remember this line where um Ethan Hawke outswims yeah the thing and he's like oh how did you do it and he's like oh I don't save anything for the way back I'm misquoting the line but that's kind of the thing and David Cho uh who is like become like a very big modern influence and I say modern just like recent influence on me um was like he put that on a fucking t-shirt like it's he's lived his whole life based on not like that sentiment but like that line you know what i mean it's not like it came from somewhere else and gattaca kind of articulated it it is from gattaca and i can kind of see how that would work you know what i mean gattaca is not like a normal a normal movie gattaca is a different kind of film well gattaca is weird for me Gattaca kind of like put a little bullet in my brain, like it kind of like like touched something, and I was like, it didn't. You ever get something and then kind of like a film or a book or a piece of music, and it kind of like creates an itch. Yes. And you think it's gonna scratch it, but it doesn't. Yep. All the time. And Gattaca did that to me, and then I saw Dark City a couple years later, and it did. Dark City does for me everything I mean, Gattaca tried to do in my head. Mm-hmm. Mara, there's a Dark movie. City's great. There's a Dark, Dark City. Dark City really probably should have came up on my list. There's like a movie. Just, in, I don't just because Alex Prois hasn't done anything since then, so I thought I was like, I think Dark City's like a happy accident, so it didn't show up on my list. But Dark City's fucking awesome. Well, you just assume that a Kiefer Sutherland movie is, you know, <laughs> like, no I don't know about this. Movie. I was like, this or Flatliners has to be at thirty-five. <laughs> there's a movie on my time. My... Flatliners is not my thirty-five. No, no, Flatliners is not in any ways thirty-five. Um, Maybe the remake. There's a movie in my top five that. I didn't watch for two years because of that a fear of that exact thing happening. That I was just like, I know I was made for this. Me and this movie are are one. And I was like, but I can't face the idea that it isn't. So I'm just going to not see it. So and then one day I just put it on. I was like, yep, I was right. Yeah, I was right. Ah, oh, man. Snow day with Chevy Chase <laughs> really needed to be there. No, it was Jack Frost with Michael Keaton. <laughs> but no, I, I get that. Like, like Goodwill Hunting does nothing for me, but there's movies that on my list, I think repeatedly that do nothing for you. That exists in the realm of like, that's entertaining or that's, that's good. Like, Good Willing's good. Well, we've never supposed that people... we're the same person, that we have the same... We <laughs> most very specifically do not have the same taste in movies. <laughs> yeah. The fact that, like, you know, last week, technically earlier tonight, but last week for our viewers, you know, we came to um, 
you know, the the, the Bob Dylan documentary, the uh, the Rolling Thunder Review, in two totally different ways of like, this is a, th- a movie about memories, and this is a movie of no, 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 no. I was like, why can't you see it that way? This shows that like we're wildly different people, yeah, yeah. but like we come at it in the end in the same way, and I I see that. I could see how good. Goodwill Hunting's like a, a class act in like reductionism in, in filmmaking to me. Like it, it, it reduces everything. It's That's interesting. Up. Like, cause like look, it's not your fault scene. It's like the showcase now of good acting. Of like, you want to see a performance? Look at the scene. It's like, yeah, that works. Cause that's a really good performance by both parts. Mm. You know. Because, like, Goodwill Hunting exists as a showcase of, like, examples of good stuff, of good acting. I mean, not good direction. Like, good acting are, are really solid screenwriting, you know? Um, See, and I would argue that the movie, the scene in that movie that does that for me is, like, when Matt Damon is analyzing the, the picture of the boat. And, you know, um, and Robin Williams, like, gets him against the, you know, takes his glasses off. He's like, and then he, like, grabs his throat and, like, holds him against the wall. It's the scene that precedes, like, his Oscar-winning scene. But that scene, for me, has all the things. It has the, like, good uh, Will Hunting's cockiness. It has, like how you still say good Will Hunting. Good Will Hunting's cockiness. Um, exemplified perfectly by Matt Damon. The lighting's all weird. You know what I mean? It's not natural. Um, it's like a couple... There's a couple of times in the movie where Gus Van Zandt does that, where he kind of... Who does this? Is this, this is Deacons, right? No, no, no. no. It's, it's not... um... Who am I thinking that? Who the, it's a long name. It it's, a, it's a French name. Why did I think it was Deacons? It's, uh, it's, it's a Jean Van Escoffer. What movie is I think you have Earth with Roger Deacons? Go ahead. Keep going. Um, and it's all emotion. And the emotion is real and there and, and very present. And I think the thing that I don't like about that scene that we were, you were just talking about, like the it's not your fault scene, is the that... Hurricane. I was looking at the hurricane earlier because of Rolling Thunder review. Oh. And, and forgot that. I Roger. forgot Roger Deakins. The movie yeah. stinks. Um, that's not Roger Deakins' fault. It's Michael Mann and Will Smith's and, fault. And Norman Judenson. Um, Norman Judenson's just not good, too. Yeah. Moonstruck. How is that a thing people liked? I don't know. I was just reading about Moonstruck. I'm sorry. Very recently. But, but go, but, but. Anyway. Um, <laughs> this is the, the episode of Asides. Yeah. Um, the aside episode. Um, but yeah, that's so that's the scene for me. What? I said that's a good title. Oh, I have lots of good titles. Um, that's so that's the scene for me that kind of that kind of that does it. And then there's a couple of Lambeau, um, Sean, Sean scenes that I think are really, I think that relationship is actually really well done. You know what I mean? Where they both they started out wanting the same things and then over like the course of several conversations, they've realized that they still want the same things. They're just kind of, they've both decided to go to get there differently. Mm-hmm. And one of them's kind of succeeding at it. Or no, neither of them are succeeding at it. One of them is just not as good as he thinks he is. And he knows it. And the other one is purposely like put his own wall up, like to living, to living life. And it takes, and that's why this movie is not like a great movie because it takes Matt Damon to come and inspire them to take their walls down and acknowledge like things are missing in their life. And that's, you know, that's a stupid sentiment. Um, but yeah, I don't know. But there's, there's, but there's a lot of things inside of that that are really, 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 really interesting. 
And I think one of the things I think is interesting is that so when they filmed the bench scene by um, the river, there when you know his Oscar-winning speech, um, he's like, "Oh, vast you about Shakespeare? Probably quote me a sonnet." Apparently, when they were filming that scene, there was like thousands of people there, like like thousands of onlookers just came and were standing there watching them do that, and you would never know that that's like the case. And I suppose I shouldn't be impressed by that, but I kind of am impressed like, by it. Is that Jason Bourne? <laughs> and people are like, who? Robert Ludlum. He looks just like he described him in his books. Yeah. Um, that that looks like a deformant to me. <laughs> um, it just I, I find that I find that's a real that one joke. fact kind of fat like that one kind of insider movie fact kind of fascinating. Yeah. That like. Um, well, no, I, I, I think that's the kind of thing about this movie is like it is a movie where the actors do showcase themselves. Mm. But overall, it's still a movie that just kind of is, is fine. Yeah, and it's funny because that's now, my problem with Gus and Stan. A lot of movies are just fine. When I think about this movie, like I'm thinking about it right now, while we're talking about it, and I'm not, I'm not thinking about a specific theme. I'm just scene. I'm just thinking about how I feel when I'm watching it and like the things it makes me think of. So I think one of the things I was going to say before is that like, this is pre me going to college, but there's aesthetic things that I was responding to in college, like the fall. Um, I got really into autumn, like when I was in college. Oh, not the movie, the fall. No, no, no. Like, or although I did like the fall from a visual standpoint, from a visual standpoint. I remember I saw that alone at Criterion. That was the first movie I'd ever seen. One of the first movies I've ever seen by myself at Criterion, and it was a chilling experience. Um, and then I got used to it because nobody goes to Criterion anymore. Um, or ever. Um, <laughs> Seven people went tonight. Um, and, and so there's, there's other things, but I think those things, like my kind of obsession with, with how fall makes me feel or autumn makes me feel, for the people that like call autumn instead of fall, um, comes directly from, like, Goodwill Hunting. Um, I don't know if that's significant. I don't know if that means anything to anybody, but it kind of means something to me. So it's 56 on my list. Um, so I don't know how I'll list it on the website. I don't know if I'll list it, like, Goodwill Hunting slash Brothers McMullen, but I'll probably just keep it as Goodwill Hunting because I don't think I would go looking for the Brothers McMullen if it wasn't for Goodwill Hunting. And I tried to watch the Brothers McMullen for, to do this podcast, and I turned it off, like, 20 minutes in because I... It just seemed like it was never going to stop. It's short too, right? It's like ninety-eight minutes, but it's just talking the whole time, and it's Ed, it's an Ed Burns script, so it's just a lot of like horrible bad talking. We know it's not, it's not that it's bad. It's just like it's delivered well, but it's just cliched things. Well, that's what I meant. Like, that's re- what I meant. Like, it's like relationship like... stuff. It's like I don't care about relationship stuff. Relationships don't mean anything to me. Um, like from a movie perspective, like these aren't like... relationships aren't real. Whatever. Like, you've seen Sidewalks of New York. Sure. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's all you need to know. Right. Sidewalks of New York. That's it. I mean, or I mean, I think, what is the one that everyone's seen? Like, she, I think she's the one made the most money. Um, he, out of all oh, he his, did write that, yeah. Out of all his stuff. And that's the same thing. It's just a lot of talking. But he's got a lot of charismatic, a lot more charismatic people talking in that movie than he does in The Brothers McMullen. Or Sidewalks of New York. Which is not a take against Brittany Murphy. There's a reason he's not really writing movies anymore. 
He still is. He still is writing. Oh my movies. God, dude, his only movies he's starring in now are the movies he's writing. Yeah, he makes like really cheap movies. Whatever happened to him? How did he disappear? He. I don't think he disappeared as much as he kind of just kind of decided he was gonna like Brothers McMullen his career. Like he was gonna make doing movies that way the way he always does it. It's a weird choice. Actually, he's not starring a lot of big things for how popular of an actor he is. Weird he was in a TNT brains. show for a while. He's in 27 Dresses. Remember that movie? That's a big deal. Who's that, Jennifer Garner? No, that was a, a Catherine Heigl movie. Oh my god, Catherine Heigl. No, I'm, you know, the, the DVD cover I'm thinking of is 13 going on 30. Oh. Which she is... That is not him. Is, no, he's not in that. Can't remember what that is. I don't know. If you remember that is, you can tell us at twitter.com slash film pivotal. Or you can go to you can email us at pivotalfilm that pivotalfilmpodcast at gmail.com. Man, my 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 seg was perfect and your seg was a garbage. It was bad. It was bad. Because I was just so in awe of your seg. Is that what we're calling them now? Mm-hmm. Segs. Did I say seg? <laughs> yeah. I'm okay with it. We're uh, we're real now. Yeah. We're for real. Um, it's what they call We're international. So Ed Burns calls them calls them segs. Um, or you can go to pivotalfilm.com and you can leave us a message there, or you can subscribe to us, or you can um, see the list of the movies that we talked about, or the beers that we are drinking thing. Um, drinking thing. <laughs> um, but until then, Tom, you've you've had two beers. <laughs> had two beers. No, three beers. Three, yeah. I'm very sleepy. No. Um, I got informed last night that I have a very bad snore. Is it sleep apnea? No, I don't think so. But it is what it is. Um, but until then, go see a movie, drink a beer, and we'll talk to you next week.